Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, November 29th, 843-661-0937 is, is with a uh, spirited heart and a, and a, I don't know, Rev, a, um, a broken attitude that I come on the air this morning and inform our listeners that I've taken another job. Mm. Um, Coach Shane Beamer called me yesterday <laughs> and asked me to um, fill in for the bowl game or do the bowl game for Marcus Satterfield, okay. who took a job at Nebraska yesterday. So um, there are only a handful of jobs I would leave my audience, uh, my, my friends, my cohorts in the morning uh, every single day for. Um, one would be to be the offensive coordinator at South Carolina, especially when the going rate for a decent OC pays, well. it, uh, it pays extremely well. Um, so, yes, I mean, it, it is with a heavy heart <laughs> that I inform our listeners uh, today will be the last day I will be en route probably helicopter university helicopter sure. at some point this morning if you guys hear a lot of noise in the background it'll be a chopper you know landing in the uh, adjacent parking lot um <laughs> jettisoning me off to columbia south carolina home of the fighting gamecocks well i'll begin my new career as um well, good for you as an offensive coordinator nice. at the university of south carolina so we'll do the best we thank you for you all appreciate that <laughs> we'll do the best we can for real rock and garnet every day now I notice that and he's, he's a, working um, for us he's by a the fair way. weather fan everybody at the gym yesterday had a gamecock shirt on but me i mean i've worn mine i've worn mine about every day uh because it's about all i've got to work out in but you old gamecock t-shirts and sweatshirts and that's the contrarian in you i guess but i mean everybody i think i saw three four five maybe even six people that last week had clemson shirts on this week have gamecock shirts on um, some of these fair weather fans, I don't know what to make of you folks um, out there. But anyway, let me um, ask you a serious question about okay. Satterfield's let me a departure. Serious question. You don't uh, think me leaving here is a? I mean, that's not a serious matter. Yeah, well, maybe it is. How distraught is Rev? <laughs> I'm, I mean, he's, I'm all broken know, up. You know, I mean, he's all broken Can up. And deeply concerned and bothered. <laughs> I mean, he, you know what Rev sees, don't you? A chance to be Batman. Oh no! Uh, as no. soon as I jettison out of here, no to Take this new gig. I don't want that. Uh, okay, gig. what is the serious question? Ser- and it's related to uh, this is for Gamecock Nation for okay. Satterfield's departure. Okay, so Clemson fans think we're talking too much about Gamecocks. I'm sure. Recently, and we, we probably are. Okay. But, I mean, that's kind of what you know. It's amazing what a two-game winning streak over. <laughs> you know, top 10 teams will do for a program. <laughs> and we're, we're all of a sudden, we're the uh, we're the Dallas Cowboys all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we sucked are. three weeks ago, wanted everybody fired, questioning whether Beamer could do the job or not. Well, well, and uh, and, and all of a sudden, you upset Tennessee at home in a probably a perfect game. I mean, when you think about the Gamecock football program, that night couldn't have gone any better. It's like a golfer going out and birdieing every hole. I mean, you just there. There are, there are a couple Things of days. Up. But I mean, there are a couple of days in your life. It's like pouring, you know, water into a bo- uh, water out of a bottle, and that night was similar to that. And then you get a big upset win against your rival at their place, and it does exude of confidence from Gamecock Nation. I'm sorry, the serious question. So as it relates, and it's exactly what you're talking about here. Three weeks ago, there were calls for fire set, fire set. I mean, we we may have even had ourselves or some of the listeners on that bandwagon because we were so frustrated with how the season was going, especially after the Florida game. Okay, two two wins, two unexpected wins over highly ranked teams. And now, are you happy or sad that he's gone? How much of a role did he play in those wins? I, mean, I, I don't know if I'm happy or sad. I mean, and I'm uh, talking. About, I, I, I think it was the right decision. I mean, I think that you can't forgive or excuse or just dismiss. <laughs> The twenty-three games. I've seen it referred to as a soft landing. Well, it was very much which a soft is a way landing. You know, everybody can. You, kinda... you, you said a second ago. Sometimes things work out. Yep. Satterfield is real good friends with Shane Beamer. 
He's extremely good friends with um with Rule. What's his first name? Matt. Yeah, Matt Rule, who took the job at Nebraska. I mean, they they coached together at Temple. They coached together in the Panthers. So um when when I mean I, I, I mean I don't know this to be true. I don't have any idea what goes on behind the scenes every day. I mean I've got some buddies who are closely connected to the program, and they let me know things that they you know feel comfortable telling me. But I think that a, a few weeks ago, Beamer told Satterfield, his friend, um, this isn't working out. You probably need to start looking around to see if there's something out there that you can uh, pursue. And uh, the Panthers firing rule kind of opened that door. Rule's a good coach, a good offensive mind, just didn't work in the NFL. So he gets the job at Nebraska. And I got to believe that there was a pursuing of that job. There, there was a re-engaging. I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I would imagine when Satterfield's having his issues at South Carolina, Matt Rule reaches out and says, hey, man, keep your head up. I mean, you're, you're a good coach. Keep your head up. Don't let the fan base. I mean, you know how college football fans are. They're fickle, and, you know, they want to win every game and just keep your head up. I mean, I would imagine you maintain that friendship, however disconnected it may be. But when the opportunity came for a job opening in Nebraska, um, it kind of gave a um, – the exit ramp needed for Beamer, Satterfield, South Carolina, Nebraska, and everybody involved. Um, I guess the the more pressing question is, you know, where does Shane go from here? I mean, who becomes the next offensive right. coordinator at South Carolina? That's the million dollar. Well, I mean, question. Beamer's in negotiations right now with a new deal. I mean, I know that. That's not breaking news. I mean, that's I don't want to say it's mainstream, but I mean, some of the Twitter reports, some of the Facebook postings are somewhat accurate, not totally accurate. But, I mean, they're in negotiations now to re-up a deal. I mean, he'll get a big raise. I just go back to Kentucky. I think the, the Kentucky Stoops number surprised me. I mean, it really and truly did. When I read the Kentucky coach was getting $8.6 million, I said, well, Calipari's probably worth that, you know, with the grand scheme of things. I mean, Kentucky being a basketball blue blood, um, I just, when I read the, the Kentucky coach is getting a new contract, and that contract is $8.6 million a year, Without reading the next paragraph, or I, you know, I just said, well, I mean, I, I have no idea what the Kentucky basketball coach makes, but it doesn't surprise me that he makes nearly ten million dollars because it's Kentucky and it's basketball. And then I go on to read it's head football coach Bob Stoops, and 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 the problem with the Kentucky program, Rev, is I think they plateaued. I mean, I think they've reached the pinnacle of Kentucky football. Um, it's a basketball school. I mean, to some degree, the Kentucky faithful are going to be careful not to allow the football program to outshine the basketball program. I mean, it's a little bit like, um, I'm trying, North Carolina. I mean, North Carolina's not going to let that football program take precedent over that basketball program. North Carolina and Kentucky are very similar in that. I mean, they've had some football success. North Carolina's played in the ACC championship game this weekend. I mean, they've had some football success, but it's basketball, basketball, basketball for those two universities. So when Stoops gets $8.6 million, I mean, I'm kind of under my breath going, oh, crap. I mean, you know, this is really going to change the marketplace for a head coach at South Carolina. I don't know if you saw this or not. Luke Fickle gets $9 million, 8 or $9 million. I think it might have been $9.25 million to be the head coach at Wisconsin. Big Ten school got a lot of money. What do we talk about? The Big Ten of the SEC and all these funds making their way. Nebraska is going to play Rule, who just got fired from Carolina because they don't think he's a good coach. The Panthers, so he gets somewhere in the neighborhood of $9 million. So a guy gets fired from a job in the NFL, ends up as a head coach. What conference is Nebraska in? I mean, the Big Ten. Big Ten. And they're getting about – I mean, that seems to be kind of the going rate. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the Dabo Sweeney's of the world or, or the um, the Nick Saban's of the world. I'm talking about these marginal coaches who've proven a few things but not so much others. I mean, Stoops has had a good run at Kentucky, but it ain't – I mean, he ain't played for national championships. 
he had been in a you know a fourteen playoff. I mean, he's been as good as Kentucky's ever been. But but once again, think about it. Stoops gets eight point six. He's in what conference? Rule gets nine ish. He's in what conference? Fickle gets nine ish. He's in what conference? I just think that seems to be the going rate. And anything south of seven and a half million dollars for Shane Beamer is going to be kind of an insult to the program. Uh, text with a buddy of mine yesterday uh, who's familiar with the negotiations. And I said, what's the number? He said, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. I said, did you see what Stoops got? Yeah. Did you see what Fickle got? Yeah. Did you see what um, Rule got? Yeah. Well, how do you not pay Beamer right, right. a competitive salary Are you salary in the SEC or not? Sure. I mean, are you, there you go. Absolutely. Are you in the SEC or not? And if you are, explain why your coach is making four or five and everybody else's coach is making seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve million dollars. What is Saban worth? Well, let's go back. What is Dabo worth? If Stoops is worth eight six and rule at Nebraska, which is a legendary program, but but let's face it, guys, Nebraska ain't what it once was. I mean Nebraska's not an elite program, a premier program any longer. When I was a young person, Nebraska was one of the best programs and jobs in America. Tom Osborne. I mean, it was, you know, always playing for a national championship at Nebraska. But some things have changed. We've had this big migration of population down south. That seems to be where the hotbeds of, you know, college football are. So, so once again, I think Stoops and now Fickle and Rule have just completely changed what head coaches are getting paid. I want to be careful here. Not what they're worth. I mean, it's hard for is, – is, I'm, I'm serious, Rev, and I'm a bit as big a football fan as there is in the world. It's hard to convince me that a college football coach is worth $10 million. How much revenue does the football well, program the, I get in. that, but how many people go to watch Dabo coach? No, how many no, people you're, you're go right. to watch – You Nick are Saban absolutely go? right. I mean, I get they build the programs. I mean, they, they, their, their fingerprints, especially with Dabo and Saban and a few other of these guys who have been uber successful. I mean, I understand but, they but create the brand. But they're kind of the CEO of the football they, program. I, I get it. I mean, I get it, but, but – is, is is coaching a college football team similar to running a Fortune 500 company? Uh, we, we've kind of we've we've agreed it is, and I just think we we've got to get you know we talk about higher education bubbles and I mean are we in a college athletic bubble? I mean how long can the television networks continue to pay X number of dollars for um, the rights to broadcast college football games, college basketball games? I don't know the answer to that. I just think it's an interesting um, issue to ponder and consider. But if you're Shane Beamer, I mean, I don't care if you're greedy or not. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, his, his age is Jimmy Sexton. I mean, Sexton's going to squeeze every dollar out of South Carolina he possibly can get. I mean, he's the um, he's the cutthroats of all the cutthroat agents. Let me ask you this. If you were trying to sell a property or buy a property and you could hire an AD at a university or Jimmy Sexton, to who would you hire to represent <laughs> your interest? You would hire Jimmy Sexton uh, for sure. So he's Beamer's agent. I mean, he's the kind of the super agent of – nearly every coach of the SEC, and um, and the Gamecocks find themselves in somewhat of a conundrum. It, it, you know, you beat Tennessee and you beat um, Clemson, there's a little energy in the air. There's a little optimism about the future. Um, who gets a lot of credit for that? Shane Beamer. So all of a sudden, Beamer's on the market or in the market to get renegotiated. And, and I mean, if I'm Sexton, I walk in and say, hey, man, if Stoops is worth 8-6, my guy's worth 10 I mean, if Fickle is worth, you know, nine, my guy's worth ten. I mean, that, th those guys haven't beat, you know, Tennessee and Clemson in back-to-back -back weeks. Those guys didn't take over a struggling program and almost single-handedly energize from within, you know, this positivity and attitude. I'm just playing Sexton's hand. And I, sure. you know, but, but anything south of $7.5 I think it's a little bit of an insult. Not just to Shane Beamer, 
but the Gamecock program in general. We just live in a new era. I mean, it, it's a new time. What is an OC worth at South Carolina? I don't have any idea. I mean, do you go out and try to get a Kendall Bryles or a Garrett Riley? I mean, those would be the two elite names or premier names to replace a Marcus Satterfield. Um, I have no interest. I have no idea if Riley's interested in moving or if Kendall Bryles is interested in moving. I do know this. Historically, coaches have been mercenaries. Show me the money. You know, I, am I going to call plays at, at TCU for a million dollars when I can call the same plays at South Carolina for two million? You <laughs> know, go Gamecocks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm just saying we, we we get this false sense of loyalty and commitment, and you know, uh, win one for the home team. I mean, I, I would imagine there is some of that. I mean, there, there's some of that connectivity that certain players or coaches have with certain universities. But by and large, these folks are. I mean, it's in it for the livelihood. And, and you know, when, when a coach is paid one amount at one school and is offered twice as much to go to another school, I mean, that loyalty seems to, to be uh, become secondary. 843-661-0937. But to answer your question about the offensive coordinator at South Carolina, yeah, I think it was the right thing. I mean, I, I think Saturday, it was time for Satterfield. I'm glad they had the two games they had. You still scratch your head and say, Excuse my French early in the morning. Where the hell those come from? <laughs> you know, when you watch the body of work for two years, you, you kind of scratch your head going, wow. I mean, a um, couple of buddies of mine said, I've never seen a pro Clemson buddies. I've never seen a team change that much. I mean, I've seen a team get better, and I've seen a team progress, and I've seen a team get players who were injured back. And you know what I mean? The team's all of a sudden more competitive. I've never seen a team play as awful offensively as they did for about a year and a half until something clicked in Tennessee, and um, and then you kind of um, carry some of that momentum into um, into Clemson. I went back and watched a lot of the Clemson game um, last night. I know I'm supposed to be preparing for um, you know the radio show, and I did some of that. I'm a little better prepared today, but I did go back and watch um, some of the um, condensed versions on YouTube about um, what happened and what didn't happen. I mean, it was a game, and I stood by my comments yesterday. There were 15 micros. In the game, turnover, penalties, um, you know, the, the one thing that I think I didn't pay as close attention to as I should have, the punter for South Carolina continually put Clemson in the shadow of their own oh, yeah. end zone. I mean, it was crazy. Not just a 57-yard average, but he kept Clemson inside their own 10-yard line, I think three or four times. And I don't care how – I mean, if you're struggling as a quarterback, the last thing you want to do is make a mistake in the shadow – of your own end zone. And I think Kai Kroger, I mean, he was named SEC Special Teams Player of the Week. And it was not just the six punts for 57-yard average. It was downing at the three, downing at the four, downing at the seven, downing at the two. And um, and once again, if you're not a very confident coaching staff uh, about your quarterback's abilities and your quarterback doesn't have a lot of confidence in himself, it just creates problems. I just believe this about Clemson. And I think very often it's interesting to watch a Clemson fan give me an opinion of the Gamecock program. I mean, I'm a Gamecock. I tend to be, I mean, despite saying I don't look at it through garnet glasses, there's still some degree of garnet tint in about everything I look at. Um, it's a little bit like my brother. I mean, I can criticize my brother, but Rev better not. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I can criticize. You and I can get together, and I can complain about the Gamecocks all I want to. But if I go to the gym and a Clemson buddy says, y'all suck, next thing you know, we're fighting over. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, right. it, there's this uh, spiritness about a spiritness about the rivalry, but but as as an outsider looking at Clemson, and I said yesterday they just don't look like 
They did. South Carolina played harder than Clemson. South Carolina looked like they had something to prove, and obviously they do they better than Clemson did. Um, Clemson still has better talent from top to bottom, no question about it. It's not night and day like it was a couple of years ago, and they closed the talent gap without question, and they didn't really do it through the conventional method of recruiting high school players. But they went out to the transfer portal and found a difference maker or two at wide receiver, a difference maker at cornerback. They improved their offensive line of the transfer portal. They get the um, the, the kid that made the big catch, you know, at tight end. They get a couple of tight ends in the portal. Obviously, Rattler, you know, the Bitcoin of college football, the high-risk, high-reward example that he is. But, but when I go back and look, it just looks to me like Clemson has lost a little bit of its edge. They're not playing with that attitude. They're playing with a sense of entitlement. And I don't know where that comes from. I mean, is it Dabo having been there so long and been so successful? And as Thomas said, Wednesday at Rivals doesn't allow an outside set of eyes to honestly critique the program. I mean, I'm not close enough to the program to see that. But when I watched the condensed version of the game last night, one team played harder than the other. They both wanted to win. I mean, it's your rivalry. You want to win that game. But one team just laid it on the line. And the other looked like to me, they were waiting to win because they were supposed to win. And is that from years and years and years of success? And, and along with that comes a degree of entitlement? I don't know. Clemson fans would know better, better than I. Now, the on-field product, and I still stand by this, you've got a quarterback who doesn't trust himself much, and you've got a coaching staff that trusts him even less, and they don't allow him to throw into tight windows at the Gamecock Corners forced him to throw into tight windows, and you end up 8 for 29, 99 passing yards. And as Roger said yesterday, in 2022, if you end up with 99 passing yards, you better have 500 rushing because it's just a new era in college football. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So the moment I said that I was leaving the air going to take the OC job at South Carolina, three people are sitting in the studio right now waiting to um, audition for this job. <laughs> right. So it's not like they think it's that hard to do. Um, what do you do, okay. dude? You wake up in the morning, you run your mouth for four hours, and you go take a nap. Then you eat lunch, take another nap. Uh, no, I'll assure you it's a little more complicated than that. But the three people who are sitting on the couch right now waiting to audition <laughs> for this um, highly compensated job on the radio, <laughs> leave, go home. I was kidding. You'd probably be better at it than I am. Speaking of um, on-air personalities, um, Reb and I, Rev, and I have discussed at, um, over the years what's next. You know, what, what other sort of um, uh, endeavor do we need to uh, consider? And uh, podcast seems to be something that we've talked a lot about. I mean, we've had discussions with our listeners about podcasting over the years. Um, I'm planning on, if the good Lord willing, next year sometime, I'm trying to involve myself in a podcast. But I get nervous about it, and I want to tell you the reason I get real nervous about it, and there's kind of an interesting story. Rev knows way more about this than I do. YouTube influencers, internet influencers. Um, I've heard uh, I've heard the bad boy, you know, the guy we were partnering with on Wednesday, and we've talked about him a good bit lately. I've heard him say, ain't no way somebody on YouTube's making a million dollars a year, or two million, or three million. How do they make that money? Well, I mean, it's unusual, but they make that money by subscribers and, and views, and they edit some of the content. They put it on, you know, YouTube. And, I mean, you've seen the um, – I mean, I'll take CNBC for an example. I, I watch a lot of CNBC on YouTube. I don't watch CNBC because I'm not home. But I watch a three-minute video about interest rates or a four-minute video about uh, the mortgage situation or the housing market. 
and it informs me to some degree. And I'll send those videos or, or, or articles to myself from YouTube if they're video archived. Um, so, so, so the Rev and I've talked about, you know, we're in a medium that is not, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's tra- trans, terrestrial radio will always have a place. I'm convinced of that. I mean, I get satellite radio and I get Spotify and I get iTunes. And I mean, I understand all that. Nobody, I mean, I think the one thing we've done here at Wake Up Carolina is not bury our head in the sand and, and say, those are fads. Those will go away. Radio will carry the day at some point in time. Rev and I are well aware of the competitive forces we're dealing with in the world of entertainment and finding our share in the marketplace. And we've kind of sort of embraced um, Facebook, probably not as well as we should. Twitter, probably not as well as we should. We hope next year to do better at podcasting, excuse me, at Twitter and and um, and Facebook, some of the social media interactions. Um, but, but the one thing that we've always considered is a podcast. You know, how do we fit that in? How do we partner? How do we take the brand that we have here and, and develop something over there that we think could entice and draw an audience? And, um, and we've had a lot of conversations about that. And I'm ready to kind of, um, you know, dive into that. And I ain't the kind of guy to, you know, stick my toe in the water. I dive in the deep end and drown or swim. So uh, we got something coming. But I, every now and then I read an article that concerns me. Because if I'm going to do something, I want to understand what it is I'm getting myself into. So I read an article over the weekend, and you warned me of this. I mean, Rev has said, I'm telling you, man, because we say controversial things. I mean, sometimes we intend to, sometimes we don't, but I mean, we challenge the status quo. We, we, we've argued, Rev, I mean, one of the most provocative things I've ever said on the air is I would encourage you to be skeptical of your government. Well, I mean, government doesn't like that. I mean, if somebody who has somewhat of an audience, somewhat of a voice in the public domain says, I want you to be skeptical of your government, the people that are in charge of government don't much care for you saying be skeptical of your government. Well, there's this, I mean, there are a million people out there doing um, some other way. What we do and what you're talking about is protected under the First Amendment on the radio and with support of the ownership of the radio station. But you can't, you can't encourage violence. I mean, there's certain, no. I mean, there's certain, we've always said that the First Amendment has certain bench, I mean, there's certain um, guardrails. I mean, you can't yell fire in a theater. I mean, we, we've always talked about you can't yell fire in a car at a theater. Um, but, but anyway, um, part of the, the podcasting would be YouTube. You know, how do we edit and deliver content on that? Um, there are more people watching YouTube every day. That There are about six times as many people watching YouTube as there is television. I mean, just think of that. I mean, there, there are six times more people watching YouTube at some point in time during an average day than there are watching Fox, MSNBC, CNN, you know, the conservative news networks that um, Jeff <laughs> talked about yesterday. Oh, yeah. It's just the media is conservative. Um <laughs> Jeff, I love you, and a lot of times you make me scratch my head and wonder whether my positions are sound, and and, and I'm, I'm thinking them through the way I should. You, you lost me yesterday. I mean, I, I just don't. I mean, for the life of me, don't understand how any reasonable soul Quite the does not believe. I mean, I think Jeff likes. He's got a little bit gene like I do. He likes the good argument. He likes the debate. He likes to be somewhat of a contrarian. So if everybody says yellow, he says blue. If everybody says green, he says red. I get that. I mean, I, I, I to be honest with you. I like that. I mean, I love people who will go against the grain, but to suggest that the media is not liberal, I, I just, I mean, that, that's out there. I mean, that's, that's, and I've been out there before on some fronts. That's further out there that, that even I care to get. But I want to go to the podcast because part of the podcasting is the, the editing and delivering of that content on YouTube. 
And YouTube's parent company is Google, probably the most powerful company in the world. Would you agree to that? I mean, Apple's I got a lot of yank. Uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of companies who have a lot of influence, but Google's probably um, the most powerful company on the planet. I mean, the search engines, YouTube, some of the other um, algorithmic advantages they have in the way they um, content moderate. I mean, anyway, I mean, there's a certain lingo in that world. There's a guy named um, Matt or Faley. He's a YouTuber. Um, he historically is not aligned with Democrats or Republicans. He does something. I mean, he, he considers himself a video creator, uh, but he's not a pundit. He's not a political personality. But but what he does, Rev, is he edits some of these, um, he calls them mashups. I mean, he takes these montages and he and he edits, but, but he doesn't misrepresent. He said, I've never misrepresented a Republican's point of view. I've tried to never misrepresent a Democrat point of view. But he's amassed a big audience. He has millions of followers. He has, um, you know, a bunch of subscribers, um, thousands and thousands of views on every YouTube video he downloads. In other words, if he were a podcaster, he would be the example of success. The, the guy probably makes, the Rev and I have done some math here. We imagine he makes six, seven, eight million dollars a year as a YouTuber. I mean, we, we've, um, because we've considered podcasting, we've gone down the road of correlating how many views, how many subscribers equals how much money. And this cat is one of the influencers. I mean, he's figured out a way to, I mean, you should see him. He looks exactly what you would think. T-shirt, shorts, flip-flops, long hair. Okay? <laughs> he's your, he's your right. traditional YouTuber making about 6 or $7 million a year uh, in a basement somewhere, um, mashing up, editing and mashing up um, some of these corporation or corporate figures, politicians. Um, what, what he did a couple of weeks ago, he did a, a I mean, I watched one. Uh, Thursday, not Thursday. Let's see, the holidays get me all goofed up and what my weekends were. But anyway, I watched a video he made about um, politicians of the media basically decrying the Wuhan lab theory. Remember the Wuhan? I mean, there were there were skeptics early saying that this something that smell right here. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a remember John Stewart on Stephen Colbert show yep. when Colbert said, "Are you insinuating that this could have been um, created in a lab?" And he said, insinuate. I mean, you remember the bit <laughs> oh, we played. Great, yeah. I mean, it's named after the facility. I right. mean, it's the Wuhan virus. And it emanated from the Wuhan virology lab. I mean, it, it came from Wuhan, China. And in Wuhan, China, they have something called the Wuhan, you know, um, coronavirus lab. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm absolutely I'm arguing that that's where it came from. But anyway, um, they demonetized this guy for about six weeks. So he goes from making five or six or seven million dollars to making absolutely nothing on YouTube. And the majority of his money is subscribers and views. And, and here's the way it happens. If you get X number of subscribers or views, then let's say, I'll give you an example, Black Rifle Coffee. I mean, they, they've, they've, they've marketed their brand to conservative audiences. So Black Rifle Coffee, Google has a salesperson that goes to Black Rifle Coffee and says, hey, you need to be advertising on YouTube. I mean, you know how many people are watching YouTube every day? I mean, nobody's watching CNN and Fox anymore. Stop advertising there. Stop start ta- stop taking a full paid ad in the USA Today. It doesn't make any sense. You need to be on YouTube. Here's what we'll do. We'll put you on the top 30 news sites, conservative sites, liberal sites, sports sites, you know, whatever your um whatever genre we're talking about here. So um so I would imagine 
that before this guy's video plays, there's a Black Rifle Coffee ad. There's a, you know, what other advertiser ad, you know, conservative audience, liberal audience, young audience, old audience, um, high income, low income, kids, adults, seniors. I mean, it's just there, there's a there's a, a method to the madness of why you advertise and where. So um, he does a uh, kind of a mashup. He edits a mashup, uh, political figures, and a lot of um, big shots in the corporate world basically um, trying to marginalize that the Wuhan lab leak theory is this baseless conspiracy theory, that there's nothing to see here. Um, and then he goes on um, and plays clips from politicians when they say the Hunter Biden lap sto- laptop story is Russian disinformation. But but all of a sudden, he's cool there. I mean, there's no problem there. But then he... Um, but then he gets a um, a demonetization notice from YouTube um, that he was involving himself in election-related misinformation. And all he did was publish a montage of Democrat politicians and media figures questioning the results of the 2016 election. He didn't add any commentary. He didn't do what I do. He didn't say, well, let me explain what you just heard and I'll give you my interpretation of what the facts probably are. He does none of that. He's not an opinion monster. He's not a pundit. He's not politically biased, so he says. He just simply finds politicians, corporate figures, uh, members of the media who contradict themselves, who say that Donald Trump argues the 2020 election was stolen, and that is election misinformation. But it's not in 16 when Clinton and a bunch of Democrats and media members say Trump is illegitimate. He shouldn't be uh, the American president. So he puts up a montage um, where he shows Hillary Clinton and um, several other Democrats and media members say the election was illegitimate. It was rigged. It was hacked. Um, And then he released a second montage comparing those statements um, to those of President Trump. And he's been um, not permanently it's not disbarred. I mean, he's not a lawyer, but he's banned from monetizing any of his content. And I mean, he's real frustrated and bothered by this because he believes that YouTube is focused on not misinformation, but misinformation that may damage, you know, the the Democrat instead of the Republican. In other words, if there's something out there that they can call misinformation, I mean, how do you say, I mean, once again, he doesn't play a Hillary Clinton bit and then tell you what he thinks about what right. she said. He lets the content stand on He's its own. presenting them sure. in their own exact Here's words. what Mrs. Clinton said in 2018 about the 2016 presidential election. And that's fair game. And all of a sudden, YouTube doesn't like it. Well, they don't like it because he's got a big audience, got a big following. He may be shaping opinion. He may be convincing people that there is a double standard here. So he goes from making about $6 million. Now, he ain't spending his money on wardrobe. I'll assure you of that. I mean, nobody at the clothes store is taking a hit here during the recession that is impending. But but it's just so interesting. And I told Rev, and he and I've talked a lot about this. I said, Rev, what if we do a podcast? And what if we edit and download some of that content on YouTube and we get a little bit out of bounds as far as they're concerned? And we say things a little bit more provocative. I mean, we do that on the radio. But as Rev said, the First Amendment allows us to do that on the radio. Google owns YouTube. Google is run by a bunch of liberal, you know, uh, I don't want to say hippies. That's unfair, but I'll say it. I mean, to some degree, hippies, the modern day hippie. And they have these groups of people called content moderators. And they have, from what I'm gathering, full authority 
to say what's allowed and what's not. So you build a business and your revenue is based on how many YouTube views you have, how many subscribers you have, and YouTube in a nanosecond decides to not just demonetize, but eventually deplatform. I mean, how in the world can that be a wise business decision to expose 100% of your revenue to people you have never met and never will? I mean, you're paying your YouTube subscription fee. I mean, it's so much of money to, you know, allow your content to be a part of that universe. And, um, I mean, I, I read this story and I'm like, I don't know if I want to do a podcast or not. I don't know if I want to be solely dependent upon content moderators in Silicon and, Valley. And the way I picture it, you could have a 22-year-old a person, and I don't know why I picture them like this, sitting in their basement, you know, running a laptop. You, so you picture them like that because that's who they are. And, and they are the, the arbiter of whether you are allowed to stay on YouTube or monetize your videos. And you got to believe they say, hey, this guy from South Carolina is gaining a little steam. You know what I mean? He went from 2,000 subscribers to 50,000 in about three months. Mm -hmm. What is he talking about? And, you know, somebody sends an email. Hey, check this guy out. And the guy plays a a montage, not not a political opinion. I mean, we're going to be political opinion. And you just, I mean, that that concerns me. I mean, it does. When I've been encouraged to do a podcast, I'm going like, okay, I'll do the podcast. I'll be in control of the content. But but for me to disseminate that information, that opinion, I'm at the mercy of a company that by and large doesn't agree with anything I say and has the ability to shut me down whenever they see fit. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. And and there you go again. You're it sounds like you're preparing for the worst. Well, I mean, you, you, you talk to. about these these big ideas, but you're like but well, I mean, when you consider a business endeavor, you've got to think about barriers to profitability. I mean, I always do. I think about what could go wrong, what might go wrong, what don't I control? I mean, I have no control of a YouTube con- YouTube content moderator. Let's say you and I have a beer, decide to do a podcast, and the podcast gains some degree of success. Next thing you know, nobody can find our podcast because a content moderator doesn't like something I said over the air. You right. darn right, I'm thinking long and hard about that before I go into. Um, that sort of venture. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Hey, I think there's just something that we're kind of leaving out here, and it's real simple. It's that Google, its parent company Alphabet, its subsidiary YouTube, are evil. <laughs> oh, there's that. Really, it's just that simple. And what we're sitting here trying to do, and, and now here's the deal. We can all agree. Now, you ready? Quit listening to them. Quit using them and quit watching them. Nope. Not me, because I like it too much. Um, I'm not doing anything evil. I'm watching people make trick shots on a golf course. You know, I'm learning how to hit my drive straighter, or I'm studying the stock market. But um, or I'm learning how to wire a, a light receptacle. There's nothing evil about that. No, there's sure not. But if you want to use that platform for anything that they don't like, you're not going to be able to. And... They're evil, and so the things they suppress are things that are even-handed or tell the truth or tell too much truth, you know. Uh, but we're not going to quit using them. I mean, they, drugs are evil, but ask the people that are using them. They love them, you know. And they, why? Because it feels good. Well, but, I enjoy watching YouTube. I'm not going to quit watching them. But, Larry, th- but, but think of the pra- – I mean, I'm a fairly practical man. I'm going to start a business where my main profitability depends on someone who I go into this endeavor – no holds a different worldview and will do everything to not allow my opinion to be more mainstream. I mean, in essence, that's the, I mean, that's got to be part of the business model. 
Um, it is for them. And, and the thing is, when did businesses, it's just funny, not care about profit? You know, I mean, they don't. I mean, there are so many newspapers that are owned by these big companies. They don't care if that newspaper ever makes a dollar as long as it prints what they want it to say. And YouTube uh, largely will be profitable because, by and large, advertisers want to be in front of eyeballs, and they got a lot of eyeballs. But they are not going to let those eyeballs see what they don't want them to see. So if you're going to figure out profitability, you got to figure out content. And you got to figure out, can I make a profit with a content that they won't crush? And I can tell you, for the two of y'all, unless you're going to teach people how to make rocket chairs, the answer is no. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. See, I consider that a compliment. I mean, I know what Larry meant by saying that. I mean, you know, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to keep uh, speaking my piece and, and saying things I believe um, strongly and passionately about. Do we have time for another call? Uh, we have about a minute here. Hey, Breeze, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, but who's okay? Okay. Well, don't, I, I would don't. I would just gonna repeat what Larry said. But y'all just got a minute. Um, I just gonna say, right. We didn't hear what you said. You dropped out. I, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah we hear you yeah, good. Go ahead. Yeah, I, uh, since y'all y'all only have a minute, I would just go. I have some other stuff I was going to say, but Larry was right. Well, you can yeah, you can hang on now if you don't. If you got a few moments, I know you probably got a client in store. But I mean, if you got a few moments, we got a hard break. Top of my next client's at seven thirty. So, uh, I, uh, well, hang tight, hang tight. Hey, let's pay yeah, some on. bills. Let's pay some bills. We'll get back and get Breeze the floor. Um, yeah, we, we need Breeze to get us back in gear after our long weekend True. and our extended conversation about the miraculous. University of South Carolina fighting game calls. Hang in there, Breeze. We'll be back. Floor's yours. Back in a minute. You know, when you really think about this, and I know Breeze is there. Give me two seconds and we'll get back to Breeze. But when you think about it, they're deciding what it's worthy of hearing or not. You know, they're deciding on on whether your opinion is valid, um, worthwhile, justified, um, allowable to some degree. That's a funky feeling to own a business that depends on somebody you've never met, will never meet, probably shares a very dissimilar worldview but can shut you down in a nanosecond mm. just because they want to. Wow. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, thanks for hanging on, man. You'd have to use rubble, kid. But my thing is, is uh, are we really that much more stupid, weak, cowardly, and uninnovative than these leftist, godless, Democrat, fascist pieces of crap? I mean, are we really that? I mean... Why would that guy be at the least bit surprised that he got cut off from YouTube? You could have any form of depravity there you want, and that's fine. But if you start speaking the truth about government and the Democrat fascists, you get cut off. He had to know that. You know that. I know that. But so the only so the question is, Amazon. You know, Amazon stands for everything we disagree with. But just like just like all, what was it, Larry? What I said before. But we still use Amazon. Until we start coming up with viable, you know, viable ways to compete against them, we're always behind eight ball. They came up with the voter harvesting, ballot harvesting. They came up with mail-in ballots. We knew the minute they did that that they were doing doing it to cheat. But what do we do? Sit there and let them cheat. I mean, we're pathetic is what we are. You know, we sit there and we send money to universities. Yeah, the Senate constantly sending me things, send me money, send me money. But the administration now and the people that run the Senate are not lined up with my ideals. 
And as we sit there, we pull for football teams where the majority of the guys would just assume bug you. That's that will shake your head and tell them they appreciate you donate and give them money for them to have a scholarship. But here we are like a bunch of damn fools standing on their chairs for Carolina and Clemson and either other college or pro athlete or whatever. And the vast majority of them have exactly the opposite views that you have and really look at you as some dumb white guy that daggled is stupid enough to give you money to whatever college it is, Citadel, Clemson, Carolina, you name it. But what do we do? Beautifully do it. We watch the same musicians that hate our guts. We watch the same movies that hate our guts. You know, I mean, we're doing everything we can to lose the game. Everything. And, you know, and we aren't doing anything to win the game, but sit there and whine about it. So, I mean, what does anybody expect? You know, you keep doing the same old thing over and over again. You know what I'm saying? It's expected you know, a different result that you're a damn fool. You know, so, yeah, you probably could do your thing on Rumble, but here's the next catch, too. You know, what happens is, like, you know, I think Parler tried to do something to compete, and then um, Google or, or whoever runs one of those things just shut them down. You know, so until we have um, our own um, – version of the internet, our own version of Amazon, you know, and again, even all these other corporations. I mean, I go to Costco, and it makes me want to throw up every time I go into Norbert right by the house, you know, but they were the guys that had us wear masks forever. The FDA, what did they say? Oh, we never recommended you not take ivermectin. Well, that's a damn lie. Ted Cruz posted a post where they said, would you take horse medicine? So, I mean, we're, we're sitting there being made fools of on a daily basis, and then we sit there and complain about it on the radio. And, hell, I'm just as guilty as the rest of them. But I am trying to cut out a lot of that stuff. I don't give any more money to nobody. And I try to avoid Amazon. I try to go shop at places that are owned by individuals and things like that. So and I think if more people were to just, you know, we got to innovate ourselves. We can't count on, can't count on that going on Google and Facebook and, YouTube and the rest of those guys to, to, to uh, be on our side. They hate our guts. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Uh, but, but, but stay there for a second. So let's devise a plan this morning. I mean, how is how are people like us supposed to exist and function? I mean, Larry said something interesting. Man, I'm just trying to figure out how to hit a gut ball straight. You know, I'm not trying to get into political punditry or opinion and, and arguing back and forth about it. I mean, I, I watch a lot of debates about Christianity and atheism. I mean, for some stupid reason, I find that very interesting. Uh, Christopher Hitchings, you know, I mean, he's dead and gone, but he was an intellect. He was an atheist. I find his opinions very intriguing and interesting. YouTube is the platform I can find some of the archived material it, from Hitchings. Why is it not just good enough, though, that if you don't like something, don't watch okay, it? Okay, but, but, but why do the moderators have to moderate the uh, other opinions out? But but are we? I mean, Breeze would be an extreme example, and I think Breeze intends to be an extreme example. Everybody's out to get you. I mean, I, I'm there. I mean, I, you know, a lot of a lot of my biases are extreme. Um, you too. I mean, if you're in the business, let's say you do start a podcast, Rev, and uh, and the podcast requires delivery on YouTube. I mean, how, if you're a business person, how do you just look past 2.7 billion daily views? I mean, just right. do on that you for go a second. Where the people are, sure, you right? do. So, so um. So, so there are 5 billion videos in the world watched on YouTube every day. Some are watching how to hit a golf ball straight. Some are watching to be politically motivated. But, but it's, a, it's a platform. It's an engine. It's a catalyst. It allows people to 
um, express themselves. There, there's a guy that knows how to hit a golf ball straight. You know, he's figured out a way to hit a golf ball straight. Larry hadn't figured out a way yet. So Larry wants to hit the golf ball straighter. Um, I mean, for me, I want to stir a political conversation. I want to move people to political action. I, I want to convince people that, that the conservative worldview, the, the small government worldview is best. I, I don't know that YouTube's bothered um, by, by somebody on their platform trying to convince somebody this is the best way to hit a golf ball straight. Or this is the best way to, you know, turn a dollar into $2, some investment methodology, you know, uh, betting. I know friends of mine who they have these um, waging sites that, that argue about the um, uh, the math, the algorithms that help you be a more successful better. You know, if you're betting on football and, um, you know, Clemson is 11-1 and one, uh, after a loss on the road on natural turf with, with a backup quarterback, you know, uh, practicing two or three days a week. I mean, you, you can go to the extreme but that's not trying to change the country, correct? I mean, hitting a golf ball straight or not is not reshaping the political, um, I don't know, the political mood of the country. What what right. you and I do that they would consider is trying to sway opinion, trying to convince people this is a better way to think than that is a better way to think. But if you're in the business of convincing people or, or swaying opinion, wouldn't you want to go somewhere that 5 billion people Watch a video every single day. So how do you say I'm a good business guy, but I'm not going on YouTube? You can't. I mean, you can't square that up. You, you kind of got to think about when you go on. And here's the dilemma. Here's the quandary. As a conservative business person, let's just say we're doing a podcast. And the podcast needs to be delivered and edited, edited and delivered on YouTube. You're going into this knowing that's unfriendly territory. I mean, you're a Yankee playing at Fenway Park. You're a Gamecock playing in Death Valley. You're a Tiger playing in the Williams-Brice Stadium. I mean, they, they aren't your friend, and they control your ability to be successful or not, to be um, someone who affects change or influences. I mean, there's a reason they call them YouTube influencers. And, and it is so interesting. Is it a public utility? I mean, let's go there for a second. Is it a public utility? I mean, if you've got 5 billion people watching YouTube videos every single day, um, eight of the 10 are 18 to 49 year olds. So it's largely young people uh, for the most part. I mean, I know there's some younger than 18. There's some older than 49. That is their demo. That's their target demo. Is it time to look at YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, the internet as a public utility? I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. I, I, I don't have any ability. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the legalese. The ins and outs of of what it takes to con, you know to change a law that forces YouTube to moderate content equally. I mean, if YouTube provided electricity, if they were indeed a public utility, and Rev were a conservative voter, and I was a liberal voter, and YouTube said, "Run that power to the liberal guy, but don't run it to the conservative guy," right? I mean, that's a public utility. We have oversight. We have government in charge of you know you can't discriminate. YouTube discriminates. We know they discriminate. Um, Larry went to extreme and said they're evil. Well, I mean, if you have Larry's worldview, they are evil. They're absolutely, totally evil. But they have the authority. Why? Because they have a parent company, Alphabet. It's a subsidiary. Um, they have a right to do what they choose to do. But is the is the public domain, is it time to regulate some of these um, internet companies in a way that we regulate some of the utility companies? Telephone, water. Um, uh, the, the infrastructure, the electric companies. I mean, there's certain government bylaws of which they have to abide by, and I'm limited government. I mean, I'm small government. I think Google has a right to do it. 
But if you want a, a level playing field, if you want a fair chance to address an audience, I mean, you and I talk a lot about this. We know that they, uh, I, the way I explained it to Rev, they mess with us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rev knows that. I mean, we went from having, you know, seven, 800 views to two or 300 views. I mean, the content, I mean, it's never been that good, but it was good enough to get us there. <laughs> and all of a sudden we're down 60%, yeah, what changed, 65%. Right? What changed? We showed up on some list somewhere. I mean, I don't think somebody daily goes to that list and say, yeah, we still got him, but there's some, that there's some computer generated methodology that puts us in a certain category and our message is suppressed. No doubt about it because the, the, um, the Lords of Facebook decide that this message is the message the country needs to see and believe. And this message is dangerous and doesn't need to be seen and, and for people to have a chance to believe. Let's By the way, get, just, just talking about the, the money that's made on YouTube. We talked about that earlier. Mr. Beast, the top earner reported last year on YouTube. You know how much he made? There's no telling. $54 million. <laughs> In a t-shirt, pajamas, and flip-flops. Um, take that, bad boy. Mr. Beast. And, and the other, of course, the other interesting censorship discussion that's out there, and this is big-time news right now, is the discussion as to whether Apple will pull Twitter off of their app store. I mean, that's a that's a, the same form or, or along well, the I mean, same lines. Okay, but Elon about. Musk says if they do that, I'm making my own phone. How many of us can make our own phone? I mean, he lives in a world he, that he's the one. Sure, I mean, <laughs> he's, he's the only he's, one. He's kind of our guy when it comes to that world. I mean, we don't have anybody in our world that can just design, build, and and market a new phone. But but is it time to um, to regulate YouTube, Google, um, Facebook, Twitter? Is it time to regulate those as if they were a public utility? Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Morning, Anthony. Hey, fellas. Um, I believe y'all are dropping the ball on something. I remember one time before you were saying that the Republican Party need to embrace the African um, people and bring them into their party. Well, it's a big thing going on now with Kyrie and Kanye West. And I've noticed that on YouTube, since you mentioned that, that a lot of I ain't gonna say rabbis, but Jewish people are convincing the black people that we need to join them against uh, the white supremacy force that's holding them back. And then I look at with Kanye West, they're not the Proud Boys, but it's a group like the Proud Boys. They're on Kanye West's side trying to get him exposed because of what the Jewish people are doing. So to make it kind of simple, as a black man, we got Jewish people telling us that white supremacy is our worst, is our biggest threat. And we got white supremacists telling us that no, it is it, not a black and white thing. It's the media and the, you know, who does that, that's making us hate each other. But doesn't it but seem like, right sir, now, that, y'all be, but doesn't it ahead. seem like that they're playing? I mean, and I, I know the debate you're talking about. I've heard some of the conversations and discussions, but doesn't it seem to me like they're treating the black voter as a pawn in a game, I mean, if we, it's almost like if we can convince one or two or three blacks to do this, a lot of others will fight. But if I were a black person, I'm not, but if I were, I'd be insulted by the way I feel like I'm being treated in this debate because I feel like I'm a pawn in the game. One group's trying to pit me against that group, and, and subsequently the, the other's trying to pit me against. I mean, do, do you sense that? Do you feel that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, all the way out, yeah, you sense that. But see, the problem is, is that. Ken and Rev, okay, now y'all been on the radio for a while now, and y'all speak to different kinds of people, black people. It's three kinds of black people. It's an African-American, it's a black person, and it's a brother. Explain that. Brothers are like, Explain that. 
okay, uh, African-American basically was raised and educated just like you are. You know, everything that you know as a European, he believed all the, the history. I mean, the history books and everything. He knows exactly what you know. A black person, and you have received phone calls from people that you see, African-American, they, they agree with everything you say the same way. A black person call you, Ken, and most of the time I, I listen to you, and you can eat them up because they sound kind of ignorant. They basically repeating something that they heard somebody say, and they don't have the facts to behind it, and they can't debate it. A brother is kind of like a Malcolm X type person. You can't just tell them anything, blah blah blah. America media deals with uh, African Americans. They don't deal with a person that has his own mind and thinks for his own self. And a brother, they deal with African Americans, so. Yes, it does bother me to know that they're talking about using black people as pawns, but they're not talking about, I don't know how I can say it though, but there's another class of black people. We're not monolithic. We're a different kind sure, of Sure, sure. I've always of, believed that. I mean, I ran for office. I talked to a lot of black voters, and I never left there believing that they all agreed. I mean, I think the national media try to paint black voters as almost monolithic, but when I ran for office, I mean, I ran as a Republican, and I knew I weren't going to get but so many African-Americans, but I didn't turn my back on the African-American community. But when I left a group of African-Americans, I never left there believing that somebody's telling all of those people what to think. They were very free-minded and, and, and a lot of different beliefs within. I mean, it reminded me of white people. You know what I mean? I mean, when, when I went and spoke to a group of white people, I mean, th- there were a lot of different opinions within that group of white people. Same thing in the black community. And, and I was at the gym yesterday. Thank you for the call. Appreciated Anthony, a lot. And um, keep calling in. I'd like to hear from those different perspectives. But I was in the sauna yesterday, and an African-American guy was in there with me after my workout, and we started talking about it. He started talking about politics, and I didn't say anything about hosting a radio or, you know, doing any of that. And, and anyway, the conversation evolved and evolved and evolved. And he started talking about Kanye. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Help me understand it. And he explained it to me. And his, his sentiment was exactly like Anthony's. I'm tired of people believing that because I'm black, I think what every other black person thinks. I'm tired of that. It makes me so frustrated. And my response to him was, what can you do about it? I mean, I, I, I want to be careful here, but I'm not going to be but so careful. There's one party who wants you to be kind of one of the same. I mean, they want 90% of that vote. There's another party who doesn't set any parameters. I mean, I'm a Republican. I want black people to vote Republican, and I want them to believe what it is they believe, whether it's a brother, whether it's an African-American, whether it's a black man. And I think as a white person, I mean, I'm around a lot of different kinds of white people. I mean, I'm, a white, I'm around white people who have certain perspectives and worldviews, white people who have other different perspectives and worldviews. But, but if I were an African-American, I'm not, but if I were, I think I'd be bothered and offended by the Democrats believing that if I can convince one or two or three blacks of you know, that I'm the best option, I'm the best party to kind of advance their, no, their cause is your cause. Our cause is their cause. There are many, many, many African-Americans who want a fair shake and a better way. I mean, what do I want? I want a fair shake and a better way. I don't want anybody giving me anything. And I think there are a number of black families who, who don't want things given to them, that they want a fair shake and a better way that they want a better future and life for their families. But there is an element within the African-American community that I think have been hoodwinked into believing that if you vote for this party, you're always going to be taken care of. I don't think most African-Americans want to be taken care of. They want a fair shot, that they want a fair shake, that they want to believe tomorrow can be better 
than today. Now, there's an element in every community that will freeload, whether it's African-American, white, Hispanic. I mean, there, there, are, there are people amongst us who just don't want to pull their weight. They don't want to do their part. And the government has enabled them to not pull their weight, not do their part by, you know, uh, a lot of different entitlement programs. A lot of different government agencies dole out a lot of different government prosperity. And, um, and it seems to me the African-Americans have been more suspect to kind of fall in line behind that preconceived narrative. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Isn't this some of what J.D. Vance argued in his campaign for Senate in Ohio that Republicans and conservatives have to decide what to do once you're in charge of government? I mean, the liberals have made it clear. I mean, they have a mission. They have a motive. Um, I mean, they're kind of, um, I mean, they're sympathetic to big government anyway, so it's kind of easier for them. But, I mean, if you have this natural inclination to be opposed to big government, government overreach, government in control, I mean, there's there's going to be confliction. I mean, there there is. I mean, you're going to be at a point where, man, fundamentally and philosophically, I believe in limited government. I don't believe government should intervene in the affairs of the private sector. But you've got this monopoly, and they're behaving unfairly. And the only thing that can make that adjustment is government. I mean, isn't that kind of what J.D. Vance argued to some degree? But but our problem is the philosophical conflict of believing in limited government, of believing in let, let kind of a live and let live mindset. But all of a sudden, you have somebody like Google who has so much influence. I mean, they monopolize information to some degree. And the content moderation seems to happen far more on one side than it does the other. Do you at some point in time as a conservative Republican say, we got to deal with them? I mean, they, they, they treat them as a public utility. Treat them as a monopoly uh, because they have monopolized the disseminating of information to some degree. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hello, Jim. Hey, uh, Ken. Um, I think that the, the first priority above all else needs to be removed the Section 230 community that these public utilities have um i am a youtuber um i've been on youtube twitter and facebook for over 10 years and at the beginning um of that 10 years i was averaging 60,000 unique visitors a day to my website and i've seen every step of the way the shadow banning the what facebook calls de-boosting and uh I'd like to call to your attention, and I'm pretty sure you've seen it, but you need to see more of it, is James O'Keefe and Project Veritas. And I'm going to give you a a very specific example. I did a show about um, Hogan or whatever, the, the Facebook whistleblower. This woman literally showed up on 60 Minutes and in under a week was in front of Congress testifying. And... What did she argue? She argued there needed to be more content moderation on Facebook, that they needed to do more to censor people. And I made a video about that, and I pointed out the the hypocrisy of it all, that on James O'Keefe's Project Veritas YouTube channel, he literally has hundreds of Facebook whistleblowers, insiders, with documents showing screenshots of the actual software, the blacklists of conservative voices, all of the evidence you need to convict them beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I made the mistake of literally reading the title of one of uh, his videos, which was Pfizer CEO 
you know, spills the beans about natural immunity. And Faith YouTube immediately took down my video and gave me a community guideline strike for medical misinformation and removed my video. The second example, I read a, a letter that was from all of the airline CEOs, and I mean all, Delta, FedEx, you know, all of them, to the Biden administration saying, please stop, as you put it, COVID need no longer run our lives. So I read the letter from these CEOs. I have Climate Viewer News LLC, so I'm a news corporation. And because I read that letter, I got a second copyright strike for medical misinformation. Though I made no claims, I only read some news. And, of course, that video as well was removed. And less than a week later, the Biden administration told the airline industry, suck it up, buttercup, and kept all the COVID restrictions in place. So the, the, the monopoly they have over culture, over people who are on the mental plantation, as your last caller was talking about, they do not want influencers being able to influence if they're giving the wrong influence. So this is 100% about mind control. And that is the way conservatives, independent, rugged individualists, whatever you want to call yourself, if you're not part of the socialist agenda and you believe in free speech, you've got to understand the fight is there. That's where the eyes and ears and minds of the youth are, and they're being corrupted by the TikToker, woke, gender-fluid, destroying culture and morals in our society. So, Jim, how would you—I mean, you're 10 years into this. I mean, you're far more familiar than I am. I mean, I know enough to be dangerous. You've dedicated, I mean, basically somewhat of your livelihood and career to this. So so what needs to be the strategy as we try to address? Is it to um, Reform 230 in the Communication Decency Act? I mean, is that the starting place? Is it what J.D. Vance says and call them a monopoly and break it up and force— you know, the force less content moderation or a more level playing field? I think I think that going the monopoly route, you know, is certainly an option, but it's less likely to succeed. Where you really need to hit them is in the wallet. And in the wallet, the, the, the problem for the majority of influencers who don't, you know, toe the party narrative of the Democrat Party is that where um, – you know, people like Steven Crowder, The Daily Wire, um, even James O'Keefe, they have teams of lawyers. I cannot afford a lawyer sure. for every time they censor me. So there's no there's no recourse. There is no um, customer service, even though, you know, I have 28,000 subscribers on YouTube and I have a personal YouTube person who's supposed to help me. I cannot go to them and say, hey, look, somebody just made a copyright claim against my thing or a medical misinformation. They literally just say, rejected. I know you say you're a news organization. I know you say you're just reading this letter, but we reject it. You've got a community guideline strike. If you get one more, we'll delete your whole channel. So you better shut up. And that is the problem. If we do not deal with their immune blanket immunity, and you got to understand better than anybody – that their lobby power is so large that there's nothing that us little 
content creators out there who are trying to make a difference in the world. The reason they fear Kanye so much isn't because he's on YouTube, isn't because he's on Twitter, it's because he's on all the things because all of the little content creators are taking what he says and then amplifying it, and they have to crush him. Thank you, Jim. Well, I mean, appreciate that call. That's kind of an interesting perspective, someone who's been kind of in that battle for for 10 years. Um, And I've read... I'm in Section 230, the Community Communications Decency Act. I've read it, but I'm not a lawyer. I mean, I, I don't understand how to legally go after and address. I mean, I've always felt the best argument may be a monopoly. I think the most interesting thing Jim said, where do young people get their information? I mean, it, I can assure you there ain't, there's not a, I mean, when I was a kid, for some stupid reason, I'd walk to the mailbox and get the paper before we went to school. And I'd read the sports section. I mean, I never read what was going on in the world. I mean, I was more interested in how many home runs George Foster had or how many RBIs Johnny Bench had or how many points, you know, Pete Maravich had. I mean, I was a kid interested in sports, and that sports section was gold to me. I mean, I could eat the Pop-Tart or the bowl of cereal and, and get my sports fix before I went to school. Um, that was kind of the highlight of my day. Uh, I'm a little bit like Marcel Ledbetter. I wasn't much on that schooling, <laughs> if, you, if, you know, if you know what I mean. If you're a Jerry Clower fan, you certainly understand what I said. But, but, but I think Jim's making an interesting point. I mean, the kid doesn't walk to the mailbox today to get the morning paper to decide or, or begin to adapt his worldview or perspective, I mean, it's ingrained in him. And they don't watch the CBS Evening News. No, not, not at all. I mean, they're, they're on YouTube. They're, now, now, God bless Elon Musk. I mean, Twitter is, to right. me, it's more fair. I mean, it gives everybody an opportunity to express themselves as they see fit. If somebody puts something out there, some liberal nonsense, somebody challenges them on that liberal nonsense. And in fairness, when somebody puts something, uh, some conservative nonsense, I mean, it's challenged by people who have a different worldview. But but what we've got to square up, and by us, I mean, as Jim said, the rugged individualist, the person who believes the Constitution is there to limit government's control. What do we've got to accept reality? And I think that's what J.D. Vance is talking a little bit about. I understand philosophically and fundamentally how you believe. But here's the conditions. I mean, here's the situation we find ourselves in. We have these media outlets that have enormous influence over our young people. And they're ingraining a certain way of seeing the world by not convincing them by that point of view, but not allowing a competing point of view. It's a little like colleges and universities that don't allow conservative speakers. I mean, colleges should be the bastion of critical thinking and debate and dialogue. And, And somebody like Christopher Hitchings should be allowed to say why there is no God. And then somebody on the other side, some some religious theological scholar, should be allowed to present, no, there is absolutely a God, and here's clear evidence that there is. And let these young people begin to develop a serious way of thinking through very serious issues. But Google, Facebook, formerly Twitter, I mean, they chose to not have that debate, but rather allow one perspective to, 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 to become more normalized and mainstream at the expense of the other. Let's go to the phone. Bert and Florence. Hello, Bert. How you doing? Uh, you know, I, I have this same problem that the black people have and people assume things because people who know that I'm pagan, they automatically assume I'm far left and they come at me like that. And people that realize I'm lean more right, they assume that I'm Christian and anti-abortion and all that. So I have to deal with that all the time. Nobody just wants to look at you as an individual. But I want to disagree with you on any government involvement because that's our problem. Every time you ask government to get involved, all they do is mess it up. 
there are other platforms out there. There are things out there like Rumble, you know, the Parlor, Getter, Gab. There exist things out there. What you have to do is convince people to go there. It's kind of like, you know, when you're trying to convince somebody to go to the polls and vote conservative. Well, you also got to put out there that, hey, these other platforms exist. You know, step off of the ones that you don't agree with and let's go over here to the ones that are struggling to exist and make them stronger. I mean, you know, it wasn't like YouTube was always the greatest thing. It started somewhere. It was little and people just kept going there. That's what you got to do with things like Rumble. Go there and make them popular. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate that. It's still kind of a, um, it's somewhat of a mismatch. I don't know Rumble's numbers. I don't know Parler's numbers. Uh, but YouTube is where the majority of Americans go. Uh, and I think Larry gave a, a kind of an interesting example. You know, I'm not there to try to debate the political issues of our time. I'm there to figure out a way to hit a golf ball straight. I mean, uh, tying a tie. You know, I mean, I got, I got kids. They, they get invited to a wedding or have to go to a funeral. They don't know how to tie a tie. They go to YouTube. I mean, it's a, um, I mean, it's almost like it's on word and it's on world. And when Rev and I were talking about podcast, I mean, you know, I'm naturally kind of the guy that goes down the, um, the darkest rabbit hole imaginable. And I mean, you guys know me well enough to know how to talk. I said, hey, damn YouTube. Now I'm telling you that they'll, 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 you know, if we, if we begin, I mean, if, if, if you're in a business and you're conservative and part of your profitability is whether YouTube will allow you to stay on or not, you got to be careful. You got to be cognizant of that every single day and it shouldn't be that way i mean you shouldn't have the right to threaten anyone i mean I, i'm not i'm not suggesting that for a second but I mean, there there has to be limitations on free speech i mean i think any conservative would agree to that i mean you know elon musk may be an absolutist i mean he may believe that someone has a right to yell fire to crowd a theater i mean i think society and civil societies require us to have some guidelines and guardrails i mean you're nodding your head i think you agree with that sure of um, but 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 wow I mean, to believe that the way to win the debate is not have the debate. That's concerning to me. I mean, we're going to win the debate for the hearts and minds and souls of the young people in America by not allowing them to have that debate. I mean, that's absolutely un-American. I mean, let, let, let's have at it. I mean, let, let YouTube allow Matt Walsh, you know, to do his thing. But, but that's where we are, and I believe that's why Elon did what he did. Oh, no question about it. I mean, there's and, and we'll, we'll find revelations as we progress as how one-sided twitter really was you know the interesting point is he said he's going to release the evidence he yeah, said he's going to publish it about squelching the uh the hunter, the hunter biden, biden story, story and some of these others um but but how do you do it i mean you know uh J jim just said he didn't believe arguing the monopoly perspective or the monopoly point of view was the best way jim's got 10 years of um, experience i mean there's a lot of water under that bridge uh of, of how to address it I, I just know as you but if you're somebody out there who do who does what we do and you're thinking about, you know, kind of um, growing your footprint. Uh, what, what is it called, Rev? Help me here now. Multifaceted, um, vertically integrated oh. media. That right? sounds impressive. Well, I mean, I've read like that it. somewhere. Yeah. Multifaceted, <laughs> vertically integrated you have media. Been yeah, I have been reading a lot about this, and YouTube freaks me out. I mean, they, they, they freak me out because, once again, if you go down that road and your business model requires availability on their platform or access to that platform they can in a nanosecond decide um no soup for you and and that's the end of it <laughs> you have to consider that and you have to plan for you're that. crazy if you don't of course you're a moron if you don't i'm a moron but i do take a break <laughs> back in just a few minutes i told rev a second ago the one thing youtube can do i mean time can get away from you in youtube land I mean, you sit That's down sure. one evening at about, you know, like a Friday evening, 
you come home, you sit down at about 6.30, you start watching YouTube, and next thing you know, it was 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and you've watched everything imaginable. Um, being a fan of singer-songwriters, YouTube is what introduced me to um, Blaze Foley and Towns Van Zandt. Yeah, what do you say that so reluctantly? <laughs> Towns Van Zandt. Yeah. I, I will say this. <laughs> because you've you've made me be exposed well, no, to no, Towns no, no. Van Zandt. Here's, here's my point here. So Thanks a lot. If you are a, um, a fan of singer-songwriters, we talked about Bob Dylan yesterday a little bit. So Dylan, um, John Prine, Bruce Springsteen, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard. I mean, there are different genres of great song, singer songwriters, more songwriter than singer. You mean Dylan, who doesn't autograph his own books? That's pretty interesting. That he sells, but he, but he got five ninety nine each. Yeah. Um, after he sold the catalog for three fifty million, so right. apparently Bob Dylan doesn't like capitalism, but he does kind of like uh, <laughs> capitalism. But anyway, back to your singer songwriter point. Well, no, I've I've always wondered. Okay, when you go down these rabbit holes, is there a bottom? I mean, is there really and truly a place where you go? Okay, there it is. Some of that, there's no further to go. Yeah, there is. The singer-songwriter rabbit hole ends with Blaze Foley and Sa- Towns Van Zandt. I mean, it's like eh, nothing, nothing down there below that. I mean, it, there's nothing any further down. I mean, there's always so you leave Springsteen and go to Dylan. You leave Dylan and go to Prine. You leave Prine and go to whomever Woody Guthrie. You leave Woody Guthrie and go to. Uh, wherever and next thing you know it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face and you say damn i'm down here a long way is there ever going to be a bottom here and then you bump into blaze foley and towns van zant and you have found the bottom of the rabbit hole i told a buddy of mine about van zant and blaze foley and saw him like a week later and he said that's a deep rabbit hole, man. <laughs> but he said, I wish you hadn't told me about mm-hmm. those guys because I started watching YouTube videos. So, yeah, if you want to go to the end of the rabbit hole without going all the way down, and I'm talking about the progressions of the different, you know, singer-songwriters, then, yeah, you just Google. Uh, here I go. You Google. Go mm-hmm. to YouTube. And um, <laughs> well, why do you say that? I mean, you, you did. I, I sure did. And? and well, I didn't, I didn't follow the – that far down the rabbit hole i, I stopped i was like oh come on tortured was what you told me yeah i mean a tortured soul these two people i, I learned enough in the few minutes of that documentary you made if me you watch. want to be certified weirdo because i'm already certified if you want to be certified weirdo then youtube blaze foley and towns van zant and join the club i mean you'll be a mm-hmm. uh, a gold club member of the weirdo club of america um dr will bolt history chair francis marion university is with us we're talking about youtube we're yeah. talking about media in general. Let's go back to your specialty, early American history. So politicians have always argued that the media doesn't give them a fair shake. Conservative politicians in particular, especially right. in recent time. I mean, you know, the liberal media. How many times? I mean, if you want to rally the forces, I mean, if you're a conservative politician, just say, I'm the target of the liberal media, <laughs> and they'll circle the wagons whether they believe what you're saying or not. But in the early days of America— what was the relationship, interaction, association of the media with a Jefferson or a Hamilton or a Franklin or a Madison? Uh, one of the first things Thomas Jefferson does as president, he comes to Washington and he sets up his own newspaper, which is going to essentially espouse uh, his party line. And so this is how, this is a way how he's going to get the message out. And so other Democratic uh, editors throughout the country would follow the lead. They would simply take the lead editorial uh, and put it in their newspapers. And so this is how the message was sort of spread uh, to all the Democratic Republicans, the followers of Jefferson throughout the country. This is the way it kind of goes. Once you get to Andrew Jackson, now it's it's on steroids. 
And so, you know, Jackson is, it's Jackson establishes his newspaper, and then right in the, the, the first column is, vote for Andrew Jackson. And then other newspapers would do the same thing. They would put the entire slate uh, of who was running for office as Democrats or as supporters of Andrew Jackson. His rivals, the Whigs, say, all right, anything you can do, we can do better. And so all you had to do was look at that first page of a newspaper and you know, all right, this is a Democratic, this is a Jackson paper, or this is an anti-Jackson paper. You don't even have to read uh, any of the newspapers. So if you're trying to figure out, it's it's very obvious and apparent. They weren't hiding the, their viewpoints. They weren't pretending to be fair and balanced. Were the public made aware that these are propaganda um, items and not, oh. and not fair and balanced, to say the Fox <laughs> News phrase? Oh, oh, absolutely. And these newspaper editors were restrained only by the limits of their imagination. You know, if, if they could think it, uh, they would print it. Uh, you, you talk about rabbit holes. Sometimes when you would look at these old newspapers, you'd sometimes maybe see like a story about a, a ship captain who saw like a strange creature at sea. So you'd read that story. Then you'd have to like read the other newspaper or the other subsequent editions to find out about this, <laughs> if it turned out to be true or not. And then you'd say like some, some guy just got drunk. And it's like, oh, man, I wasted an hour of my life. But I guess I guess maybe that was the equivalent of YouTube uh, at that time for those guys. I don't know what Andrew Jackson, what channels he would have subscribed to uh, if he were around. But again, the, the newspapers were very, very partisan, and everybody knew it. Both sides, both sides did it. And again, it was very, very apparent. So when did that change? When did the press attempt to be more uh, subjective and yeah. fair-minded about reporting on America's politicians? Yeah, it's probably once you start to see just the, the mass conglomeration, when it's all these sort of small little local newspapers start to kind of just fade away instead of the, the small towns now it's just all the the big big urban ones it's probably a 20th century phenomenon post-world war ii uh where they're trying to at least have the appearance of a we're we're neutral we're just going to report the facts and let the people let the people decide but throughout the 19th century and the early 20th century i mean yeah, these newspapers were essentially uh they were getting kickbacks they were uh, on the take for for the party again if the editor wasn't doing his job he was he would get printing contracts from the politicians, from the political parties. So he had to toe the party line. He had to embellish and do his job. If he didn't, uh, the political candidate would say, I'm going to find somebody else who's going to do the job for you. Was there any first paper of record, Dr. Bolt? That's probably unfair to you. I mean, this probably, this probably um, postdates early American history. But, but was there a moment in time when a New York Times or a Washington Post or one of these, I guess, um, storied newspapers yeah. became a place where people got an honest accounting of what political activities in America there were. You know, honest, it's, it's, no, these, these are, they're there to make money. All right. You know, sex sells any type of a, a, a radical story. This is going to attract eyes. This is what's going to get the people uh, to buy it. And so again, if you can print it, there's enough suckers out there, right? It's, think of the stuff that we put on TV and on YouTube that we're going to subscribe to <laughs> and all the rabbit holes uh, we go down. I get in trouble at my house because my my daughter she dominates the YouTube channel. She watches her craft videos, and if I watch one video on like greatest Buffalo Bills moments or best comebacks <laughs> in Tennessee Volunteer history, she knows because now suddenly she's getting recommendations. Mm-hmm. It's like, Dad, no, no, you, you're messing up the algorithm. I don't want to watch this garbage that you're that you're recommending. Yeah, YouTube thinks I there. like Bruce Springsteen for some reason. Well, I mean, you, I forced you to watch a couple of his, <laughs> uh, his videos. And it kind of it sort, it, it makes it attempt to read in. your mind. Yeah. That's a pretty good job of, of making the attempt to read your mind. I want to go back to Jefferson oh, yeah. a second because All I right. could talk about him and you could as well. So okay. the one thing Jefferson was known for was his writing prowess. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, he wrote letter after letter. He was not a great speaker. I mean, he was not a persuasive speaker from what Terrible I've gathered. Speaker, yeah. uh, but, but he was a brilliant writer. How did Jefferson trust anyone else to put into words <laughs> or put into print things that he wanted the American public to know about? That's an excellent question. And Jefferson sort of deferred. Uh, a lot of it went to James Madison. And so Madison was sort of the, the hatchet man, if you will. And so Jefferson could then say, I'm not getting my hands dirty in any of this. He knew and could trust Madison was the most faithful, trusted lieutenant probably in all of American history. And so Jefferson would sort of like call the plays, and then Madison would execute them, including finding the right guys at the right positions, you know, getting the right newspaper editor. And Madison, he could be a bit cold-blooded if you weren't up to the to the task. Uh, Madison would cut you. All right, man, we're going to find somebody else. Thank you very much for your service. Uh, Jefferson did get into trouble. The, the famous, this is James Callender, was a supporter of Jefferson, wrote some papers, very, very favorable, helped Jefferson get elected, and then he wanted a job. And Jefferson said, ah, I don't really, I didn't think you did enough. And this is where it was Callender who revealed the, the alleged story that Jefferson had perhaps been doing some uncurricular things, some unchristian things with some of the slaves at his plantation. And this is what sparked the great the great controversy. And Jefferson was, gives us an example that all of our uh, politicians could learn from uh, in the midst of a sex scandal. You know, we've seen this nowadays, sadly, right? Every politician says, oh, I've made mistakes, right? You know, I've, I've hurt my wife. Jefferson doesn't say a thing, simply ignores it. And so there's nowhere to go with the story, doesn't comment on it. And so it sort of just withers away were it not for science and DNA. Uh, would have been a curious little footnote in American history. So when... I mean, obviously, Jefferson is, is known as our third American president, yep. um, author of the Declaration of Independence. What other important writing contributions did Jefferson make in early American history? Jefferson wrote several pamphlets in the buildup to the explain American Revolution. Explain a pamphlet. I mean, when I, when I hear pamphlet, I'm going to Disney World or Carolines or, or somewhere. I mean, this, explain pamphlet. Right. This was the main method of communication, uh, certainly before the American Revolution and into the 19th century. You'd write your ideas down on paper. Lots of individuals in the buildup to the American Revolution criticized British policies, taxation. They'd go back to the ancient republics. They'd talk about corruption in Great Britain. These were mostly very, very loyally dull, boring. You know, they're written for a set audience. Uh, sometimes a guy in a bar would get up and read it. Ministers from the pulpit would read them as well. Tom Paine, of course, writes Common Sense. He uses coarse Blunt language. I mean, Tom Paine would have fit right in at the end zone of a football game at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. He was just kind of coarse, very rough around the edges. And he spoke to the people in a manner like they were used to being spoken to, in the language that they would hear at a, ta at a bar or a tavern uh, or around the dinner table. The guys like Jefferson's, it was a very formal, uh, very loyally, very educated, refined uh, type of argument. But the pamphlet that Jefferson wrote this is what attracted the eyes of many in the Continental Congress, and this is one of the reasons why he was given the task of writing the Declaration of Independence. It was John Adams who famously said to him, you have to do this because you're a better writer than I am. So what, what was included? I mean, what did he write about? I mean, the, the Declaration of Independence, most of us are familiar with. So Some of the other sure. writings were included. I mean, was it ideas? Was it sure. concepts? Idea was it natural, a belief in natural rights and liberties? Jefferson was his bow ideal. His hero was uh, the famous statesman John Locke. Did he plagiarize Locke? Well, there's the old story. The, the good writers borrow, the great ones steal. Yeah, he might have, with a wink and a nod, and maybe forgot it to forgot to cite the guy in a photo. But again, everybody knew that, again, Jefferson was always talking about John Locke 
And so everybody kind of knew, right? If you if you read John, you can kind of connect the dots. You can see uh, where Jefferson is going with this. But again, these early pamphlets was sort of what built up Jefferson's reputation. And if Jefferson doesn't make, make those pamphlets, then maybe he's not tasked with writing the Declaration of Independence and those great words which continue to rebound throughout the world. Maybe we don't have them. Somebody else does it. Maybe they fail. So who knows what happens? But, but Dr. Bolt, you would agree that we've done a lousy job in, in, in I mean, conservative Americans believe that the founders were almost in lockstep about their ideas and principles and values. They were very disagreeable. I mean, they had a lot of disagreements internally sure. amongst one another. But it seems to me the majority of the, the majority of founders did have a fundamental belief in, in, in man's right. Limited right. government. I mean, it, sure. liberty would have been. I mean, if you say explain the founders conceptually in one word, it would be liberty. I mean, they had a lot of disagreements. They all believe a Republican form of government where the people are sovereign. And so that's that's the glue that held them together. How you get there around the edges, that's where sort of the differences were. But again, they all had this sort of core set of beliefs, right? Again, we're going to have the people are going to be sovereign. We're not going to have a king, a monarch, a military here in America, the people are going to be sovereign. You're going to be judged on your merits, your capabilities, not on who your father was. We're not going to be, there's not going to be a landed aristocracies. So the opportunities for advancement are going to be open to everyone. But wasn't that kind of the premise of, I mean, if, if Locke was an intellectual, I mean, the intellectualism of Locke was about the advancement of human rights and human sure. dignity and, and, um, and, you know, I don't want to say limited government, but you know, people should have a right to chart their own course and blaze right. their own trail. Sure, no, that's, again, that was the glue that held all of these guys uh, together. And this is what they store. A lot of these guys were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for these beliefs at the end of the day. And, and many of them did, sadly, during the American Revolution. And American people continue to make these sacrifices. Is it fair to say that the founders would be discouraged by the state of affairs? I'm not blaming Democrats or Republicans, but, but you just said... Um, the notion, the premise, the centerpiece of, you know, that their collective yeah. was, you know, human spirit, human dignity, yeah. the freedom of expression, um, the, um, I, I want to be careful here, the, um, ah, somebody has to watch the heavy hand of government. I mean, it can't be trusted on its own. <laughs> um, the, um, the priorities of a person should always take precedent to the priorities of a government arrangement sure. or government yeah. ordeal. I mean, I'm taking a long way, a long road of asking you this. Would the founders be, would they look positively or negatively on America in 2022? I would I would imagine, right, they would be very, very happy because if the, the late 1790s, the United States was a, an afterthought. And now look at where we are. We are the, the preeminent power. Everybody in the world wants what we have. America on its worst day is still better uh, than anybody else, any other place in the world. They would probably grumble if they saw, and the founding fathers believed that the power should be in the democratically elected Congress. And to see that just how much power the office of the president has right now, I think that's what would probably say this, this has gone too far. Now, again, the, the powers of the president, it's certainly a product of its time, product of the Cold War, where the president has to be able to to move quickly. If there's a, uh, a nuclear missile incoming, you can't get 435 members of Congress. Uh, what, what are we going to do? All right, somebody has to make uh, a quick decision. And so it, it's a slippery slope that we've gotten on. And certainly the founding fathers would probably say that you, you might want to rein this in. You might want to check this. But anyway, we've been talking, we've been tilting at this windmill now for 50, 60 years, and President Jabbar 
only increases. Encouraged or discouraged by the deep political divide, the two-party system that has created such a division in America, it's almost like you either wear a red jersey or a blue jersey. There are no neutral covered right. color jerseys. Probably, very often. probably true. I mean, there, there were vicious political debates, but uh, the guys at this time, even into the the era of, of Jackson, at the end of the day, they would they could still get together and have dinner. And sadly, nowadays in the United States, a lot of we wear our politics honestly. A lot of people don't want to have anything to do, aren't going to associate with another member of a of different political persuasion. And so I think that's what they would and they would say to us: remember that there's so much more in America that unites us than there is which divides us. Surely they would be concerned by the influence corporate money, donations, <laughs> um, special interest have right. on the political process. I mean, they were always guarded about allowing right. the process of the politics to be so corrupted. I mean, Jefferson yeah. in particular. Yep. I mean, Jefferson really was concerned about a central government being so influenced by people who had, you know, a, a more motivated interest. I mean, he all, Jefferson always said, you know, um, the motivated minority, those, those with a lot at risk, are going to always outwork or be more diligent in making sure they get their way over a non-motivated majority. No, no, and Andrew Jackson certainly fits that. Uh, goes after the National Bank, right, because it was a powerful corporation. It controlled all of the other banks. It dominated the banking industry. It had a monopoly. All right, so again, like going back to the point you are talking about earlier, it's just the, the big tech companies, Google, Facebook, YouTube, probably the founding fathers would say, well, no, this is not, this, this, is, this is simply too big. Here in America, right, competition is supposed to be free and open to everyone. And so now here in America, you can have the great idea, but that idea is probably going to get stifled because Big Brother, one of these big tech companies, is going to say, no, you're a threat to us. Uh, we're simply we're going to buy you off right, and just to keep the idea for ourselves. And so the founders would probably dislike that pro- that part of the narrative. We'll explain. Hang around one more segment. Yeah, sure. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University. Um, Tennessee had a good weekend. The Bills had a good weekend. Yeah, he had a much better weekend this weekend <laughs> than, he had, than he had last. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few. Okay, let's walk through something. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, has a kind of a, a, a subspecialty in early American history. Um, so Jefferson does the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, of course, yeah. That's um, one of his crowning uh, achievements as president. And it basically doubled the acreage of the United States of America. 15 cents an acre, though. But, Real estate deal of a lifetime. No question <laughs> about it. But but we didn't all of a sudden say, okay, you get this and you get that and you do this and you do that. I mean, we sent Lewis and Clark. Right early on. I don't think Jefferson thought. I think he's surprised <laughs> when they showed back up. You know what I mean? <laughs> he thought it'd be bear food or something. I mean, I mean, I've read where we didn't know if there were dinosaurs out. <laughs> You know, in some of the Western territories in America. But it was very unknown. It was to be explored. But but help me understand or help our listeners understand. So we, we Jefferson executes the Louisiana Purchase. Mm-hmm. America owns a lot more acreage in a yep. um in a single stroke of the pen. When what was the process like in settling some of the Western territories that were now a part of the United right. States of America? It, t- it takes over a century. And Jefferson why is why does Jefferson agree to this? Uh, Jefferson believed that this would keep us a nation of farmers for a thousand years. He was off by around nine hundred. That, that's <laughs> that's a debate for another day. But again, in Jefferson's philosophy, the the he wants us to be farmers. The farmer is the only guy who's free because he's dependent upon no one. And so the Louisiana Purchase is Jefferson's response to the Hamiltonian. It system. was a romantic Jefferson. No, well, it really sure. was. It was a romantic Jefferson. But this is how you, you you sort of check the Hamilton vision of industrialization in factories. Because all these workers in the factories, they're dependent on the man for their job, for their wages. They're not 
a free agent come voting time. They're going to vote the way their boss wants them to vote. If we all remain a nation of farmers, it's a simple, it's a romantic lifestyle. We're going to vote however the way we want come election time. And so the the irony is, is that we don't really tap into the potential of all of this land out west till the end of the 19th century, and we have to use a Hamiltonian process. The railroad in modern machinery is what finally allows us to really just exploit and take advantage of this incredible vast wilderness where Jefferson got for us. So when did people begin to live in the Western Territory? I mean, I understand exploration. I understand sure. the government. I mean, you know, the president makes a decision to buy the land. Um, he sends out exploration crews and teams to go out and, and investigate and, and once again explore. But when did people begin? I mean, the Homestead Act came when? That's during the Civil War, 1862. And so this had long been sort of a when the Republican, and that's the end of early American history. I mean, if if, the Civil if, War, I, asked right, Dr. The Bolt, if yeah. I asked Dr. Bolt, the history uh, professor, hey, what period is early American history? You would say from when until when? I, you know, you really get down into the weeds in this book, right? The Civil War is sort of like the 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 marker, sure, you know, the watershed point. It's it's a it's a big break from the past, and so everything kind of leads up to the Civil War, and then coming out of the Civil War until the start of the 20th century, that's another era in American history, if you will. But no, as soon as the we make the purchase, lots of mountain men, if you will, really guys who at the time just want to live off of the grid, are going out there and living. Badasses. So yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, a man's man. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go out there and live with the the lions, and just you know, I'm going to going to kill him with my bare hands. I mean, that's that's that that's living it, uh, if you will. But again, it's not until sort of like the 1840s and 50s when we start to kind of move out there, and then post Civil War, uh, a lot of the Union veterans are now going to move out there, move out into these western areas, and this is when we really will populate all the areas. So after the Civil War, I mean, there's 13 original colonies. Oh, yeah. Uh, walk me through the process or walk our listeners through the process. How did we – early American history began with 13 colonies. Mm-hmm. It ended with how many? Oh, by, the, by the time you get to the Civil War, you got around, thir- you got around 30 Okay, 30 that's what I thought you were going to say. In the country. Mm-hmm. And that would have been the period of early American history. And, that's when and I, then yeah. we had another period of expansion after the Civil War Right. that that was because of the Louisiana Purchase. Right. right. From like 1876 to 1890, you get like seven or eight states uh, that all come in. The Dakotas, Wyoming, Montana. Uh, Utah has to wait a little while. But you got sort of your Rocky Mountains, your Plain states all kind of come in uh, at about the same time. Uh, towards the end of the 19th century. That's, Dang it, just a mass exodus of people now going there, trying to live the American dream, trying to escape the rat race in back east. They don't want to work in these factories. They want something more simpler, more humble, more romantic, if you will. And there had always been this sort of idea, go west, young man, in the United States. And so the west has always, there's always been this allure to us. I mean, you think about it, people, Yellowstone, people are fascinated by these these shows. And so people continue to go out there. It's just spellbinding. If you have a chance to go out there. Did the American government encourage, incentivize people to settle out west? I mean, were, were there were there governmental orders or, in uh, I don't know, articles of encouragement that made it economically feasible for someone to do something that, I mean, rational people don't sure. just do that. You don't up and leave. I mean, you got yeah. you got somewhere you call home, you understand it, you live it, you like it some days, you don't like it other days, but there's this, you know, the wild, wild west that you know nothing about but you're going to pick up and move out there. Did the government incentivize people to make that um, pretty radical move? One of the most fascinating political debates and one of the most boring debates is Congress would oftentimes debate over the price of public lands. And you talk about a, a snoozer. And so 
guys living out west and speculators would say, well, let's just sell the lands for a penny an acre. But a lot of guys in the northeast would say, no, 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 we got to keep it two, three dollars an acre because they wanted. If if you're giving away the lands, if it's dirt cheap, nobody's going to be in the east to work in the factories. So your manufacturers in the east say, no, we got to keep it at a high price because the guys who know how to work the jobs in the factories, they'll work for one or two years. They'll save up some money. They're going to go west to live on a farm, and we've got to repeat the process. So this was a rancorous debate that would go on, and you think it's kind of boring, you know, arguing over the prices of public lands. Uh, but this was this this debate had a lot of juice, and for a lot of people, certainly they want to go out and live the American the American dream out west. But the American dream was often a a nightmare. And if you remember the story of the Downer Party in 1846, when they go west, and of course they they take a shortcut. And they get trapped in by a blizzard and run out of food. And and when they get a little rumbly in their tumbly, uh, they have to start, you know, cannibalizing one another. This sort of parked uh, a stall because lots of husbands would say, all right, we're going to pack up. We've got a nice business here. I've got a nice legal practice. I want to go out west. And so you're going to uproot the family and take take a big risk going 2,000 miles across the country in a wagon. I mean, can you imagine imagine that? Maybe you've got a nice, comfortable lifestyle in the east. And you're going to put your your children, your wife and family through a a three, four month journey through a numerous deserts, crossing several mountains. Uh, This was an incredible act. So what what happened to American government? I mean, we're adding the territories. Some people, uh, some of the fearless are moving out west. Do we increase the membership in Congress? I mean, as we incorporate some of these areas, I mean, what happens to the political body that began as kind of a revolution Birth oh, or born out of 13 original colonies. No, again, as soon as you get to an X amount of people, usually around a couple hundred thousand, uh, the states could come into the union. And nine times out of ten, it's it's a rubber stamp. There's, there's not much of a date. Uh, most of these states, the western states at this time, tended to be Republican states. And so this is what kind of helps why you have a lot of uh, uh, Republican politics, Republican presidents at the end of the 19th century. It was only three electoral votes at first, but... You know, you're stacking these states on top of one another. Uh, it's a big advantage that the Republican Party was able to have. So we added 27, uh, 17 states during the early American era. Is that fair to say? We began with 13, 13. ended with about 30. Yeah. So we about My doubled, right. a little better than doubled in size. And, and did we double the size of Congress? Did we double the, the size of the Senate? I mean, how did we correlate that, that right, growth? There was, there was no cap on the House of Representatives Correct. until you get to, the, to 1930. And ever since then, it's been at 435. Who made those calls, Dr. Bolt? I mean, who decided, um, represent, uh, you know, uh, we were birthed out of what, taxation without representation. representation yeah. I mean, who, who decided, okay, we got these territories, got these people that want to be a part of America. Um, who decides you get to have a congressperson, you get to have a senator? It was, it was it really, there wasn't much of a debate. It's like when you had an X amount of people. It only becomes controversial. Well, it's like joining the gym. I mean, you just... exactly. Yeah, you, you've got the the amount of people. Congratulations, you're in. <laughs> the, the problem becomes once you start when you have territories, and now the question is of slavery. And so now it's like, all right, if you're coming in as a slave state, uh oh, now we got to find a free territory to sort of offset you. We've got to keep this delicate balance uh, in the country. And so this is why, again, it's in the 1850s as we're trying to add Kansas and Nebraska. It's like, well, what do we know if if, if they come in as a slave state, this tips the balance in favor of the Correct. South. And so, again, we, we're talking about slavery, and you open the can of worms. Uh, last question. I want to sure. go back to Jefferson a second, because I think as we as we settle the West, 
Jefferson made an attempt or wrote about grandfathering certain states in slavery, but abolishing slavery. I mean, I know that's a real simpleton way to look at it, but in essence, isn't that kind of what he argued that, that because the economy is so predicated upon slave labor, let's leave it as it is here, but let's disallow it in these places as the country grows. Is that a fair accounting? Jefferson's belief was that it's, it's going to wither away eventually. That was Jefferson's hopes. He, he turned out to be this. This wasn't wrong. Jefferson writes the language. The Congress passes a bill. It's the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, and it says all the areas north of the Ohio River, you can't have slavery. And so this is why, again, your your Big Ten country, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, slavery never takes root there. It's because of a piece of legislation that Jefferson includes. We talked a little while ago about uh, the good writers borrowing, the great writers stealing. The language that Jefferson uses in the Northwest Ordinance is almost the exact same language in the 13th Amendment, which finally abolishes slavery. So the great apostle of liberty, who himself owned slaves, though, it is his words, his language, which finally outlaws slavery in America as well. So a nice little irony, full circle. Very interesting. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. Good stuff. Thanks, Dr. guys. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair. Where, where Tennessee? Hey, no, 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 no. Tennessee is projected to play Clemson in the Orange Bowl. A lot of orange. Is that right? That's most of the projections have us okay. in that one. I, for one, would like to see that. I'm I mean, little... just two other teams that got beat by the game. Got <laughs> oh, well, well, look, look, yeah. at it, look at it from my point. If Tennessee loses that, I can't wear any Tennessee in the state of South Carolina because I will have lost to both Carolina and Clemson. I mean, they'll never they'll never <laughs> let me live it down. All I can so. say is we were not the bracket busters. We, we, we were the... Um, the bracket busters of all bracket Indeed. busters. What a yeah, show. I mean, yeah. imagine when, when the Gamecocks leave Gainesville, and I walk up to somebody <laughs> and say, hey, they're going to beat Tennessee and, and Clemson and <laughs> really good like this four. Yeah, somebody would say, check this guy into a hospital. Think of the odds right. you could have gotten in Vegas. Yeah. City. We're going we're gonna to beat Tennessee and Clemson. No doubt about it. We'll take a break. Thank you, Dr. Ball. We'll take guys. a break. Be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. I just always wondered, um, when, when America began settling the West, I mean, did you just get together in a pool room one night and say, we got enough, call them, tell them we want to be in. <laughs> you know, as we gradually went from 13 original colonies to 30 states and then other states, I was watching a video about Wyoming. I don't know why, but I was watching it on YouTube, a video about Wyoming, and they were talking about, you know, Wyoming became a state in like 1940-something or whatever, and it's only got 500,000 people in the. I'll tell you why I was watching it. It was during the Liz Cheney election. And okay. I was saying, okay, so Wyoming has two senators, only one House member, but its population is 540,000. Um, the biggest city, I think it's Cheyenne, has about forty or 50,000. The second biggest city has like thirty-two or 3,000. I mean, it's just like it's sparsely populated. It's beautiful. It's scenic. The weather's real bad, you know, six or eight months of the year. I'm talking about real um, challenging weather, but it's um, it kind of embodies to me um, the, the, the rugged West, you know, um, go West young man, uh, settling the West. But I've always wondered or tried to understand at what point in time did you ring the bell and say, we want to be in, uh, I know there were 13 of you originally, but, but we want to be a part of the union now. Yeah. And, um, We've what got were the requirements? People. Yeah. What were the requirements? What were the, uh, the prerequisites? What was allowable, not allowable? Um, who made that call? Um, did you get government representation during that? That's why I like Dr. Bolt to come on, because I think a lot of us understand. I mean, we, we understand the general theme of American history, don't we? I mean, to some degree, 
I mean, the majority of us, but how did we get from 13 to 50 states? I mean, I think you could do a week's worth of radio, uh, real specific and entailed about, okay, here's what happened, and then here's what happened. And see, I don't believe that Jefferson believed Lewis and Clark would ever come back. I mean, I'm convinced of that. I mean, I've read a lot about that, and I'm I'm just convinced that he found as too rugged a man as he possibly could, and they led the expedition. But I think Jefferson, when he laid down at night, said, I'm glad it's them and not me. Because I'm there, and I mean, there were some. You're talking about conspiracy theories today. There were some conspiracy theories in that day that that's where all the dinosaurs went. You know that that's where all the prehistoric animals were. Uh, the the unsettled western part of America. Now, obviously, there would have been natives. You know, and then we know the uh, the Oklahoma story of the Trail of Tears and all that uh, unfortunate circumstances. And, and that goes back to I guess Rev the central debate about American history. It's complex. Uh, but it's very, very complicated. We were an unbelievably ambitious nation. We remain an unbelievably ambitious nation. Uh, you think about it, a big, big acreage or, or you know, a, a parcel of land, you know, millions and millions and millions of acres with an ocean on either side, that's going to declare itself one United States of America. And its principal governing theory or philosophy is going to be the, the rights of individuals. I mean, that, that, that's a rough starting spot. You know what I mean? Huge piece of land, uh, the majority of it unsettled. We answer to a king. We decide, you know, screw the king. We're not doing that anymore. Uh, taxation, with, I mean, we talked about Shays' Rebellion and uh, the Boston Massacre, Boston Tea Party, all these uh, events that, you know, preceded us becoming a nation and fighting a revolutionary war. But we were always an ambitious people, an ambitious idea, an ambitious notion. And then, you know, Jefferson executes the, the uh, Louisiana Purchase. We double the acreage in the single stroke of a pen. And Jefferson says, okay, we own it now. Uh, what do we do with it? I know these two crazy guys that will go out and explore and find out if there are indeed dinosaurs out there or not. And I guess one of the discouragements of my life today is how uh, we don't seem to be as ambitious any longer. I mean, we settle for certain things. We, um, I mean, the government takes care of certain things. The, the government looks after certain things. The government does not force individualism to reign supreme, but rather, you know, what do we think as a group? Um, collectively, what I mean, I, I just think that um, despite the founders not being monolithic in their political views, they were liberty lovers. I mean, they, they did. I mean, if you look at and read some of the writings, not just from Jefferson, but a lot of the other political leadership, I mean, they were inspired by Locke. And if you've if you ever read anything about the great philosopher that was John Locke, I mean it was the rights of individuals, God-given inalienable rights. I mean there's a reason that's um one of the centerpieces of our Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and then the ideal of America is based on you know Reb blazes his trail, Ken blazes his trail. There are certain guardrails, there are certain requirements, but they're pretty loose compared to the rest of the world. And I just think we've allowed government to take the place. Of um of what I think should be more rugged individualism, more, more personal choice, more freedoms, more liberties. But you know, I'm one dude, <laughs> uh, like SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm only I'm only one one dude. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I can imagine somebody's like, "What was the SpongeBob SquarePants reference?" Well, no, and I've told you the reference. I got a I got a friend who's a grandparent. He inherited a grandkid because this kid got in all sorts of trouble. And he started watching cartoons with his grandkid. And he was in his 50s. And he comes to work one day and he says, you know SpongeBob SquarePants? I said, yeah. He said, that's one dude. 
And they just, I mean, I don't, I've never thought about it, but it does sound like multiple characters, doesn't it? Right. No, it's one <laughs> dude. And the way he explained it, I mean, it was just hilarious. And this guy's kind of funny. Anyway, things he says and does always end up uh, making you laugh. Uh, 843-661-0937. We'll take our break. We'll be back trying to do better in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. We've not touched on um, the economy at all since we've been back. I do want to briefly um, discuss the yield curve inversion. You know what that is, Riff? I've heard you and it's when Reggie talking about it. It's when someone gets a premium, a uh, better interest rate or better return on a two-year investment than a 10-year investment right. on some of these treasury bills. But it, it reached the biggest um, inversion it ever has. I mean, it, there, there's been times it's been inverted, and it normally leads to a recession. It's never been as inverted as it is today, and that's alarming to um, economists and financial modelers and those who are trying to decide what lies ahead. I got a buddy that's pretty in tune with that, and for some stupid reason, he calls me a friend. And um, and we talk occasionally about the the yield curve. I mean, once again, he's a technical guy, far more technical than I am. I mean, I'm GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip, and he is, you know, MIT and Harvard and Yale and all that good stuff. But he is deeply concerned about how long the inversion has been and how extreme it is becoming. In other words, the the two year and ten year, when they get this inverted for this long, his words, not mine. There is no precedent. And because there is no precedent, he is gravely concerned about what lies ahead. I don't want to be pessimistic, but I mean, I think there's a lot of things to be concerned about. Uh, probably not this year, but as we go into next uh, with the economy and some of the macro trends and macro investment models and financial forecasting is um is not looking so swell um, as we, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. Nobody has a magic wand. We don't know what lies ahead. The other thing I want to make sure we touch on before we go to our guest here um, the U.S. is playing Iran today in the World Cup. And here's the problem with soccer. You ready? I mean, you're Gamecock. I'm a Gamecock. We're excited about sports and athletics. Um, I don't know that I'm excited enough to watch U.S. play Iran in soccer because the damn score is going to be 0-0. I, I, I watched the U.S.-England game, and I w they got done, and it was 0-0. I was like, is it over? Yeah. Well, I mean, How anticlimactic. The, the Americans' record is 0-0-2. and two. Any sport that you don't have any wins, any losses, but two ties, count me out. I mean, I just don't want to be a part of that. I like to see a winner and a loser. I, I mean, I understand the beautiful game. I understand its popularity around the world. No question about it. It is the most popular game in the world. Some of the um, some of the soccer players in foreign lands make as much money as any athlete in America ever will or could dream about. But I just don't get how we can be passionate about a game. I mean, America's like winners and losers, right? I mean, we like this somebody to win and somebody to lose. And, sure. and soccer has a lot of ties. And I just think it's against the American value system to um, shake hands after. That's how was the old saying? Like kissing your sister? You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> who wants to do that? I mean, nobody wants to tie. I mean, what a letdown. And, and, and we could, I mean, in, in likelihood, I mean, there's a pretty good chance we could go 0, 0, and 3. And how do you get, how do you rally around a team that goes 0, 0, and 3? That's just not um, the American way. What is the American? Did you want to add anything to that? I was just going to say, the, the, did you see the video with the uh, Iranian reporter and the U.S. soccer player? And he corrected him about how you pronounce, you keep calling us Iran. It's Iran. Say it right. It's Iran, yeah. not Iran. And then asked him some Iran questions. Iran was Iran so far by a flock of seagulls. Right. When I think of Iran, that's what. 
That's what I think about. And but then, I, then I'm, I'm an intellect. I'm a sophisticated man. You know, you know that. And the reporter went on to ask the the player questions about racist America. But you could say like uh, Iran so far, right? You know, by a flock <laughs> of seagulls, a flock of Iranian um, seagulls. <laughs> um, but anyway, good luck to the U.S. today. And um, and there's reason to be concerned about the inversion curve. I, I may go down that road tomorrow a good bit um, and do somewhat of a, um, I mean, a tutorial on the inversion curve and what lies ahead. Um, what what is the American way is charitable, right? I mean, we are a charitable people. We are a nation that has been unbelievably blessed by and large. And we are a nation that has always been um, counted upon to do things uh, all over the world, generosity and charitably speaking. But, but Christmas, for whatever reason, and I've said this many, many, many times, brings out the best of us, even those of us who like to kind of keep ourselves and i mean people say nicer things they're more pleasant in general when, when the holidays get here and that's good because there are organizations that need our support um to make sure people who may or may not have a good christmas do indeed have a good christmas we have two ladies with us this morning beverly sansbury peggy hudson are both with us this morning to talk about um the bikes or bust and how you can help them be successful in providing Christmas to those who may or may not have a real cool Christmas. Beverly, I'll start with you. Um, good morning. Good How morning. are you? Explain um, to our listeners what Bikes or Bust is and um, and how they can help. So Bikes or Bust is actually a charitable fundraiser that community broadcasters put into place. Um, Wayne Mulling uh, wanted to partner with Lions Club of Florence because we do a annual toy run with motorcycles. Um, every December, this year will be our 39th annual um, toy run. So <clears throat> we raise money, um, donations, toys, um, bicycles to give back to the community. So anything that we raise here in the community goes back into the community. So our donations um, go to different organizations like our fire departments here in, in the area. Um, we do leader dog program for CNI dogs. Uh, the Foster Closet, the Salvation Army, et cetera. Um, those are just a few that we actually donate back to. So once all the toys are collected after the toy run and bikes for bus, we will separate those toys and divide them among each organization um, so they can give them to each and every individual that is in need. And Peggy, I think one of our radio personalities, am I right, is going to be involved in this. Beverly, one of you can speak to, I mean, the, the Pool Works is involved in this, and I think our country music uh, radio guys are involved in this as well. Right, yeah. right. right. Yeah. So okay. Mudflap and Palmer will be at Pool Works on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So you can donate there. Um, or you can go on any of your radio stations, uh, community broadcasters, and donate there. You can also pre-register for the bike run on Sunday um, at any of those radio stations as well. The bike run will start at 12 o'clock. So at the Florence Center, You'll need to be there at the Florence Center if you want to register there and make your donation of $20 per person or an unwrapped uh, gift or toy. Um, so each individual will need to come there and register, or if you register online, you still need to come and pick up your tickets for the Chicken Bog event at the end of the toy run. So the parade will start at 2 o'clock, leaving the Florence Center and we'll parade all the way through Florence down Palmetto Street and end up at the fairgrounds for a chicken bog lunch and auction. And this kind of falls in line with the Lions Club 
I mean, you know, yeah. make, make, building communities, making communities better, being generous towards community. Beverly's asked me to speak to the Lions Club a couple of times, and I normally go there and talk politics, and it's normally Trump, Trump, Trump. You know, do we like him, do we not like him? Half the room likes him, half the other room doesn't like him. But, I mean, we're, this is kind of a um, – I mean, I don't want to say it's in support of the Lions Club, but it's in partnership with the Lions Club as they kind of continue the mission of making the right. communities of which they are a part of a better place. Is that is that a fair analysis? Yes. And I'll let Peggy speak to the part because Peggy is the ringleader as far as I'm concerned of the toy run. This is our 39th annual, and she's done each and every one of them. So she Okay, is, Peggy, 39 toy runs. 39 toy runs. And you've been yes. a part of those how many times? How many of those have you been a part of? Um, uh, About 20. Okay. So you, you're an old hand at this. Yes. Okay. So, so talk a little bit about the specifics of the toy run. The toy run, um, the toy runs, well, we became involved with the toy run um, about 20 years ago. Uh, the uh, Sandy and Doug with the Harley-Davidson, they were the ones that started it up, and they needed someone to help, to help distribute the toys and, and the money and everything. So um, they came to us. I was actually president when this happened, and and we we just sort of got along really good and so we decided they decided you know well this is how it's going to be from now on the lions club is going to take over this event because they didn't want it to die you know, when they got out of the business mm-hmm. so anyway and for 20 years we've been trying to provide toys to kids for christmas exactly using the toy run as kind of a fundraising mechanism exactly and fundraising and uh we do uh, like i said we do the toys and we we also collect money which we distribute that out to so okay. to, to different organizations that need it uh, beverly i want to go back to you if you don't mind Let, let's go back over the details logistically um there are personalities from community broadcasters that will be at pool works for the bikes or bus kind of as a promote promotion of that but but this is also in conjunction with the toy run, so we're not just asking for bikes. No, I mean no. b- b- bikes are, are. I mean we'd love to have bikes, more bikes, more bikes. But anybody who has any interest in helping provide for the Lions Club of the toy run, or go to pool works and participate in the. I mean it, we're kind of collaborating here. Yes, yes. So there will we'll take anything. So um, the money that we collect, we typically buy bikes and give those to the uh, Salvation Army for distribution. Um, any toys, we collect those, and we separate them by age, and we'll give those to the fire departments um, so they can distribute those. Um, so we're just partnering with community broadcasters um, to make this a bigger event, to make it more known and that people can come out and participate. And I wanted to say, too, just because you don't have a motorcycle doesn't mean you can't participate. So if you don't have a motorcycle, you can still buy a ticket, uh, make a donation, get a chicken bog play, come out and participate in the auction that we're going to be having. Um, it's just a really fun day. You know, our biggest mission with the Lions Club is that we support site conservation. And that is allowing people that aren't financially able to have eye exams and buy eyeglasses. So, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people can't afford, I mean, I wear peepers occasionally, but um, just Prescription eyeglasses are very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we give back to. We also support leader dogs for um, um, blind blind dogs. Leader, 
blind leading dogs. Dog, um, yeah, dogs for the for the blind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, service um, dogs. The foster cause, like Camp Camp Leo for kids with diabetes. So these are all different things that we support that go back into the community of all these funds that we raise in addition to just toys. And have done it for a long, long, long time. I want to reiterate, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, everybody's got a certain amount of decency and and charitable spirit about them, but we seem to, I don't know, we focus more on it this time of the year. It's a time we reflect and realize how blessed the majority of us are and that giving spirit wins out a little more around the holiday Mm -hmm. seasons. It kind of warms my heart when I hear the Christmas carols. I mean, I profess to be some, you know, rough and rugged country boy, but I mean, certain things do warm your heart. And when you hear the country, excuse me, the Christmas music, you, you know, you're getting to that time of the year where we, we take for granted, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the gifts that we get and the lives we lead. And I congratulate the, um, the Lions Club for all the work they do. Um, and it's not just during Christmas when they do their work. They're doing it uh, all year round, trying to raise money and, and, um, mm-hmm. and, and make people who have these struggles and issues uh, be able to address those struggles and issues. And I'm proud, Rev, and you know this. It's always been a big part of community broadcasters to engage in the local communities. Radio's become very distant. I mean, it really has. I mean, it's corporate. that They're what? I mean, I don't want to call names here, but they're two radio companies or conglomerates that own 75% right. of all the stations yep. in America, and it gets very distant. It doesn't have the, the personal intimacy that I think radio is required of radio to be as successful as it can be. And, uh, and we're proud here at Community Broadcasters to um, be not local. buy into the new model, not be corporate. I mean, we're corporate to some degree. We have financial decisions to make uh, based on mm-hmm. our best interests, but it's not it's not the two big boys that have uh, separated themselves. <laughs> I want to be I don't want to be uh, personal here. I mean, you, you you and I have these conversations a lot. Yeah. The, the model we have is far more dedicated to investing in the communities we broadcast. The local communities. There you go. And um and we're. Uh, we're sternly Wayne Mulling, our manager, or our general manager and um, vice president, uh, Bruce Mittman and Jim Levin. I um, live in Boston and New York, but they've given the Wayne kind of the green light of making sure that if there's any opportunity we take advantage of in, in partnering with whomever we need to partner with to make sure we're doing our part to um, not just make Christmas more successful, but um, community information and involvement uh, more commonplace. So I thank um, Beverly and I thank... Um, uh, Linda or Peggy, I'm sorry for their involvement at the Lions Club, and um, and we'll do all we can to make sure it's a success. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So why don't we just play the bumper? I mean, we we play. I mean, Rev recommended the Eagles yesterday. We played almost the entire Eagles Christmas song, but we don't play. Is Springsteen still on um on probation? Oh, he's. I mean, is, 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 is it a yeah. lifetime ban? Uh, that, that's. Gonna I be actually up to had you. I had a buddy of ours, my, mine you. and your friend, reached out to me and said, um. He's he's doing some of this Motown music, and I think what what is the song? Night moves. Night moves. Yeah, uh, Bob Seger. Uh, no, no, it's not Bob Seger. <laughs> uh, Marvin. Friend of mine. Oh, what's going on? Yeah, what's going on? But I mean, it, it's it's, a, it's kind of a bluesy. It's a Motown song, and and Bruce has done a, an album oh. kind of paying tribute to Motown, yeah. and um and my buddy heard this song and said, I think that I mean I think that song would would um strongly suggest that he deserves to be taken off lifetime probation hmm. okay well, well no no see, I'm, i hadn't even well, be, paid attention to bruce so but, i don't but even it's know not this. okay but but i'm there, there's it's not lifetime probation it's a lifetime ban or probation right right i mean you're either lifetime banned or you're now on probation and, and my yeah. friend says that that he's absolute he's actually shown a little acceptance of the mainstream 
I said, it's amazing what $550 million in the bank will do on it. it it'll right. make you, um, you know, a little bit like Dylan not signing books that he said he did. I think that's an hilarious story. I mean, I really believe that Bob Dylan not – I mean, you got to believe that he is – I mean, he spent his entire life protecting an image, right? I mean, it's a – Dylan's a, a kind of Has a recluse. He? Has he, though? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, we, we'll <laughs> never just, know the answer to him. that. It's just him. Is, it, I mean, him, is like, he just a, an, um, an ordinarily weird guy? Exactly. I mean, he could be an ordinarily weird guy. But we know this about him. He's real protective of that image. Whether it's whether it's real or not, he's extremely protective of being kind of the unknown. You know, uh, Dylan, Dylan's a, mysti- a mystical figure. You don't know what Dylan thinks. wonder what Dylan thinks about this. wonder what Dylan would write about this. Nobody knows because nobody gets to talk to Dylan. Well, we know now he didn't sign books that he said he did. Right. And I think that's hilarious that, that a guy who has been so protective of an image for so long. And, and what is that about? I, I, the integrity of the music, you know, I'm not selling out. I mean, I, I'm writing things that people may or may not buy, but I'm Bob Dylan and I don't have to do that. Well, all of a sudden he signs a big deal with Simon and Schuster to, to write a book called philosophy of modern song. I mean, imagine, I mean, what, what's surprising about that? Nothing. I mean, why wouldn't Dylan's <laughs> book be named philosophy of modern, a modern song? Of course it would be something weird like that. But, but the one thing that I think is hilarious is the guy that has been so protective of this, you know that this um, mystical image is now found to have basically lied to his yeah. fans He's and said fraud. I signed books when he didn't sign, and and they actually went to such lengths to duplicate seventeen variations yeah. of his signature because they didn't want to get caught. I mean that, that that's pretty. I mean that's that's that pretty. Some, that took some some planning and you intense. better believe it. I mean that that's an intense commitment. Um, I mean here's the question I'd like to have answered: Did Dylan tell somebody, hey? I'll do it, but let's not make them look all the same. You know what I mean? I mean, I sign my name a lot of different ways. Let's go out and, and, and investigate that and then duplicate, not the one signature. Because a lot of times you get a certificate from the governor or the president for perfect attendance. I mean, you know damn well that's not signed by the governor or the president, right? I mean, you know there's well, a kind of a, um, of course. You're I mean, in my bubble here. <laughs> but but imagine, imagine paying 600 bucks for a book. And believing that Dylan actually signed the book, and your buddy gets one. Because you know Dylan fans probably have these clubs, and they get together and says, "Your signature looks like mine." <laughs> Wonder if he really signed. It looks exactly like mine. Mm-hmm. So they went the extra mile of having seventeen different variations of the signature. So if Rev and I are in the Bob Dylan fan club, and we both forked out six hundred bucks to get the autographed book, and we go to the fan club meeting to basically show off our book, and they don't look the same. Then you would okay. There, that's that's the real signature. <laughs> so, so did Bob say my vertigo is acting up? I don't know if I can sign all these books today. They said, look, we had this, we had this handled. And then he said, okay, do that, but don't let anybody ever find out. Uh, but we found out. Yeah. And I think it's funny that Bob <laughs> Dylan has been caught, <laughs> not being the mystical he's a, integrity he's a fraud. field figure. And and what is it has you aggravated about Springsteen? Well, I mean, you he's wonder a fraud if he's a fraud he or not. Caught. That's right. I mean, you, you know, it, well, it, it's not that you know he is because I don't know. I mean, you don't know. We're speculating. But but the um, I mean, the one thing these two guys don't want to ever have to address is whether I'm a fraud or not, right? I mean, they, they, yeah. we, we can argue about whether the music's popular or not. We can argue how, you know, where are they on but, the but pantheon of all time. done some things that make the, the raise those questions. And, and that's legitimately. The, and you know that that, that irks them to no end. That there's a large universe of their followers who now wonder whether they've been honest this entire time or not. And I think it's, 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 an, it's an overstatement to say we know Dylan's a fraud. We know Springsteen's a fraud. We don't know anything. 
I mean, we don't, all we know is he said he True. signed books that he didn't, and he got caught. <laughs> That's pretty funny to me. It wouldn't be funny if Taylor Swift, because he would go, kind of crazy to think she signed those books anyway. <laughs> but when you get an autographed copy from Bob Dylan, what do you think? And Dylan wouldn't do oh, that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Taylor Swift would do that, but Dylan wouldn't. I mean, no, the money's not that important to Bob Dylan. It's the integrity, <laughs> you know, and, and the, um, the the persona and the mystical figure that he's created over these years. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Morning, David. Hey, good morning to Bay City Roller Baker. Hey, Ken, where is Biden at today? I don't have any uh, idea. Michigan, maybe? Yeah, Michigan. Bay City, Michigan. And when I think of the, about the Bay City Rollers, um, remember a show called American Bandstand? I do. Yeah, absolutely, my man. Uh, and when you watched American Bandstand, you probably was trying to see, hey, let's see if I can see the flock of seagulls or share or whatever. I'm going to give Dave Baker credit. When he watched that show, he wanted to be the host of that show. True. You're right. True. <laughs> to admit. I wanted to be the lead singer. <laughs> You want to be the lead singer. So you guys are talking about getting out the kind of broadening your radio into the podcast. You know, I look at Dick Clark. He probably started radio. He went to the new medium of TV. Uh, even Casey Kasem, he got in TV. He was what he was uh, shaggy on Scooby-Doo. So True. you guys want to get in the podcast. I'm going to give you guys credit on that. Here's, here's where, Ken, you can you can really get into this because you brought up this thing about you actually walked to pick up a newspaper. I used to do the same thing, man. That was the, the joy of my day. I could go out there and grab that sports page, and then I could see that Jim Rice uh, box score. I physically had to do something to get to that paper versus sitting on my butt in my flip-flops. Uh, I mean, and we watched football we watched cannonball run we watched this you were talking about uh iran flock of seagulls i knew a girl um she corrected me on that i, I think i already was smart enough to say iran but her sister ended up working for the obama administration so people will take these things uh when they're offended they'll run with that and they'll and she ran with it she's made a lot of money off of that but if you if we could just get to where we could have like some sort of podcast and just common sense twenty five dollars and a tank of gas half tank of gas what that could have got you where did that money go impact of inflation over the years and then when you really break it down where did it go it went to that rent seeker so you have to follow whoever is making this money. Um, and, and that's a, that's a term that you hadn't talked about in weeks or or months. The rent seeker, but who's really making this money? And I'll leave you at that. You have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting take. Though. We we not. I mean, I got to get back in tune with the financial world. I mean, I, I feel like I checked out of that. I mean, we had elections in midterm, and you know, we didn't talk much about the economy, and we didn't talk much about you know which party's going to be good for the economy or bad for the economy. What is the reaction of some of the economic forces? When it came to the, the Republicans winning the House but not the Senate, we got an election in Georgia next Tuesday uh, with Walker and Warnock. That'll kind of decide. I mean, it, it'll it'll make it a mansion-proof majority. You know, we talked about a Romney-proof majority. But, I, you know, we've not spent a lot of time recently 
because we've been so involved in politics, talking about economic matters. And I'm going to go back to the podcast because Rev and I've always, I guess me more than, than him. I mean, I've always said, if you're not moving, I mean, if you're not thinking about something different, you're kind of standing still and you can't take your, your place in the market for granted. You just can't. I mean, we do well. And thanks to you guys. And I mean this sincerely, but now's another good time to remind you. I mean, we get ratings, take the ratings for what they're worth. We've got online listenership measurements. I mean, we got pod, uh, we rebroadcast some of the product and you know, you guys have been very, very supportive of what we do here. And I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I mean that sincerely, but I think you've always got to be thinking about, you know, another, I mean, the vertically integrated media, uh, I think is a big deal. And, you know, is podcasting a part of that? Is rebroadcasting the radio show a part of that? Is YouTube uh, download edits and downloads a part of that? Um, I think you've always got to consider. And normally at the end of the year is when my mind starts going a million miles an hour about what's next. I mean, what do we need to be thinking about next? What are we missing out there? Um, let's not take our place in the market for granted. Let's think about increasing our presence or doing even better, engaging our audience in a different sort of way. I mean, I'd ask our listeners, would you have an interest in a podcast? I mean, I think that's an interesting, uh, you know, point. I mean, I, I've argued that we become a part of some people in our community's daily lives uh, for 10 minutes or, or four hours. I don't know how long each of you listen. We think we know roughly how many of you listen. We know we know uh, we know we can measure how many of you listen online. But is there an appetite for a visual product? Is there an appetite for, you know, an, an hour long, a little more specific and entailed conversation about one issue? I mean, this is kind of rambling and random in nature. I mean, it, it, I mean, I call it, you know, it's kind of like the bumper cars of, um, of, of entertainment. I mean, we go here and we bump into something and we go over there and we bump into something. I mean, it's seriously, I mean, I, I've always considered my job here to kind of bounce things off you. And, you know, we know when things stick because we'll have a busy day of phone calls. We, we know when we're kind of, um, I mean, and, and people are, are more engaged at certain times than they are. I mean, I knew yesterday there wouldn't be many calls. I mean, it's a, a Monday after a long weekend. I mean, you're trying to get yourself back together. I'm trying to get myself back together. Clemson fans are wondering what the hell happened. Gamecock fans are wondering the same thing you know, <laughs> for the second True. consecutive week. So, um, but, but, you know, I mean, I think we're always looking at, I mean, how, exploring opportunities of how to grow this, this product that we've got. And I do believe that an hour, uh, an hour conversation about my take on the Fed or my take on the cathedral or my take on the midterms. I mean, I think there could be an interesting um, product there some way, somehow. But, uh, but, but you've always got to be thinking about moving ahead and not taking for granted your place in the marketplace. I'm not saying this, that I'm right, but something tells me, correct me if I'm wrong, Clemson fans, something tells me that Saturday in Death Valley, there was almost a inevitability of what was going to happen. And the only people that didn't feel that way were Shane Beamer and his players. I mean, the Gamecock fans kind of sort of expected the expected to happen. And, and I, I just think you got to be careful getting yourself in that trap. Thomas Hunter said Wednesday, the thing that concerns him most about Clemson football right now is too much insiderism. Too many people are too close to Dabo who won't challenge or critique the boss. And, and I, you know, I, I've told the story about a guy that I know that did extremely well in business, so well that he needed a corporate board to help govern, you know, where the business goes from there. And he didn't appoint a single family member on the board because he didn't believe the family could be critical in a necessary and viable way about the direction of the company. And, and it's, I mean, you, you can have coaches that buy into this super culture. 
And Dabo's built a phenomenal culture, but can they coach? I mean, buying, the, buying into the culture is part of the deal. Being able to coach is another part of the deal. And I think it's hard to find people who buy in and are fully committed to that culture, but can also be as good an OC or DC or linebackers coach as there possibly is. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Morning, Nick. Uh, good morning. Ken, since you asked, I am a big fan of the long-form interview, and I don't even know if you know that Bruce Springsteen, I think it dropped yesterday, Howard Stern has an interview with him, maybe two hours long, and it's on HBO. But if you could do, like, state guys, nobody does that, especially with your political connections, you know, and get their history. You know, I love the history lessons you give with the Francis Marion guy. That would be I mean, that would be my intent. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I've actually seen a good bit of the Springsteen interview with um, – with um Howard Stern. Howard Stern, and it's interesting, mm-hmm. very interesting. But yeah, I mean, if I were to do a podcast, it would be an hour long, and it would be to Lindsey Graham. Lindsey, tell me about growing up over a bar. You know, I mean, for, forget your stance on Russia and Ukraine. We know that. We'll get to that sooner or later. But tell me where you come from and what you're about, and what led you down the road of being such a prominent U.S. senator. I think there's a big appetite for hearing, as Paul Harvey famously said, the rest of the story. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, one of the most fun things about a rivalry or after a rivalry game is watching the other fan base try to figure their problems out. <laughs> I mean, the Clemson fans have had a long time to watch Gamecock fans frustrated and bothered and, and angry. It. You and know they love you. You know what I mean? And they're like, and, and Clemson fans don't have to say anything. You don't have to say a word because the Gamecock fans are mad at one another. You know, they're mad at their coaches. They're mad at their players. They're mad at, I mean, why is this thing not working? I mean, we thought this. And all Clemson has to do is be quiet. For the first time in a long time, <laughs> I'm advising the game, just be quiet. I would just let the Clemson fans, because they're irate right now about the offensive performance this past Saturday, and and really in general. I mean, the program, two years ago, it was an elite, elite program. It was as good as anybody in America. Today, whether Clemson fans want to hear it or not, it has it taken a half step back. I didn't say a step or two or three. I didn't say they're... Um, you know, uh, what am I trying to do? Give me a sorry program, a no count program in division one. Uh, I'm not saying they're South Carolina. I'm, again, uh, Ouch. I'm not saying they're Vanderbilt, but they've taken a little bit of a slide and hearing them try to consider what's wrong is entertaining to me because when we slid, they like hearing us complain sure and try to hash out whatever uh, the and, problem and, may be. And is. some people just wear their orange loud and proud. Yeah, and, and I get that. I mean, yeah. I've never stopped Go wearing garnets. <laughs> yeah, Beverly McKee with Coach for Crisis yeah, with us. Beverly's Big Clemson fan. Uh, mm-hmm. But she gave us our due. Yeah. She said, congratulations. I mean, the, you know, yeah. the, proof, the proof is in the pudding. I, Roger nailed it yesterday. I don't know why one team believes they're going to beat the other team all the time. Every time. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, that's crazy. And I've heard fans say, we should never lose to this team. Well, you are. <laughs> you are. I'll assure you that you will if you keep playing long enough. And, um, you know, has the worm turned? Are the Gamecocks going to win two or three in a row? I don't have any idea. I know getting one on the road is helpful coming back home next year. You know, and, and we'll see. I mean, we'll just, it's a little bit like the Chinese proverb. We'll see. I mean, let's be patient and watch some of this play itself out. Um, Steve Galloway is a person that Beverly and Cooks for Christ are trying to help. Beverly, I'll get out of the way and let you tell our listeners exactly who Steve is and how we can help. Okay. Steve is 66 years old, and he lives in Hartsville. He and his wife, Deborah, have been married for 34 years. 
he worked at the paper mill until um, he was forced to retire um, due to his poor health. He worked there for 24 years. In 2012, he was diagnosed with a rare lung condition. And in January of this year, he developed pneumonia. He was hospitalized, and now he, he well, he was placed on full-time oxygen. Um, and uh, in April, he was referred to Duke University, and he was accepted there as a lung transplant pla- patient. And, and he received a bilateral lung transplant on August the 6th. Um, they, of course, had to relocate there and for a short period of time. They're back now. Um, he had rehab. He'll continue rehab for the be- rest of his life. So we're raising money to help with medical bills, travel, you know, expenses. The least of his and- concern is how Clemson or Carolina doing in football right now. Yeah, but I think I saw he had a Carolina shirt on one time. <laughs> well, I mean, you still live your life the best way. The best. But this is the place where Gamecocks and Tigers can forget Saturday and rally around oh, somebody gosh, who genuinely yes. and sincerely needs our yes. help. Beverly, how can we help? Um, well, they're actually doing the prep work today, and um, but we need you to buy plates. We're anticipating feeding about 5,000 people. We're going to have drive through lanes at the West Florence Fire Station on Pine Needles Road. From 11 to 6, you can drive through. You don't need a ticket. You can buy a chicken bog. You can buy a pan of chicken bog. Um, just come and support them. We need baked goods. We still need some volunteers. We could use some more drivers. You know, 5,000 plates is a lot to get out, and the majority of them, about 3,000 plates, will have to go out to a three-hour time span. So it's, you know, it's a lot of work. But um, we need sales, and we need volunteers. Is it too late to schedule a pickup or delivery? No, you can actually um, call me at 843-229-0348, and I can write a delivery foot for you. Um, has to be seven or more plates. The deadline is 5 o'clock today because um, our volunteer will be routing all day tomorrow. And so that's it's not from, too late. And that's from 11 on Thursday until 6 on Thursday, mm-hmm. and that'll be continued service. I mean, there won't be it's, a break. No break. Okay. We decided, you know, end a little, an hour earlier, no break, and we're going to have a bake sale all day long, and we're going to have a good time. That's, they got a great group, a big, strong committee, and then we're going to have a good time. Okay, if someone wants to volunteer, just show up. You don't have to call and fill out a form or anything show like up that. At, you know, show up at the fire station. Make sure you wear closed-toed shoes. Bring your hat. And we'll put you to work. That chicken bog is really, really hot if it drops on your It's food. really good, too. And I would advise someone to buy a tray and put it in the freezer. I mean, Christmas is around the corner. Families gather. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of having to cook and labor over the stove, why don't you get you a, a big tray of that stuff? And I know you've done it before. And you've I do it ev- to- every time. But my kids took home five bags on Friday. <laughs> they, my youngest won't take home anything else. But chicken box, yeah. he takes it every time. Good deal. And that is this Thursday at the West Florence Fire Station. As Beverly said, if you want um, to get it delivered, you got to order seven plates or more and call her today. I would imagine you need mm-hmm. to know today, by today. Today by 5 o'clock. I'm going to turn all my final orders in at 5 o'clock. And that number again? 843-229-0348. Okay. Thank you, Beverly. Thank you. Thank always. You. Yeah, thank you for all they do. She's rocking her orange shirt, and I don't blame her for that. I, I mean, I, I said know. yesterday um everybody at the gym had a gamecock shirt except me and i hadn't seen a gamecock shirt other than me for about two or three <laughs> years contrarian like um that. interesting story got a family member big gamecock fan um doesn't hate clemson i mean i don't hate clemson beverly knows that but yeah. uh it, it's a rivalry and it's fun but um they, they were talking to her sister the family member talking to her sister 
And she said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to TJ Maxx. I got to get some garnet to wear to church tomorrow. <laughs> in other words, the, 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 the only garnet thing she had was seven years old and out of style, I guess, for the last time South Carolina would be Clemson. But, but I, you know, and, I'm, and I mean this sincerely. I mean, I love to watch Clemson fans c- kind of hash out, you know, what the problems are uh, because the Gamecocks do enough of that on their own. I mean, we're always aggravated with this coach or that coach. The offensive coordinator at South Carolina took a job at Nebraska. Um, normally, that would be discouraging because you feel like you lost a coach to a competitive program. But in this case, I think it's where um, everybody, I mean, it kind of works out for everybody. The Gamecock faithful, I don't think we're ever going to put their trust again. Despite what happened at Tennessee and Clemson, I don't think Gamecock fans believe that Marcus Satterfield was the guy that needed to be running their offense for the next five or 10 years. So they'll have a chance to go out and find another OC. Somebody texted me. Kind of the perfect exit strategy. It kind of worked out. It did work out very well. I mean, he'll be with his friend, and uh, Matt Rule, they work together at Temple. They work together at the Panthers. Uh, I think Satterfield is a quality coach. I just don't think it worked at South Carolina. Beamer, being the young start, gets a chance to go out and hire his guy. Um, I'm hearing that there are two names central to the debate, and that's Garrett Riley and Kendall Bryles. Um, newsflash, if anybody's looking for an OC and they're a Power 5 team, Kendall Bryles and Garrett Riley are going to be on, on that list. I'm suspect of that. And here's the reason I'm suspect. You ready? Those guys are eventually going to get a head job. I mean, OCs are eventually, I mean, they come become really good OCs and DCs, eventually become head coaches. And I think we need to find somebody, we being the game cops, need to find somebody who's going to stay there for five or six or seven years and grow with Beamer as a head coach. And if you catch lightning in a bottle and get Garrett Riley or Kendall Bryles, what happens when Florida State calls in three years and looks for a head coach? I, I just think you got to be careful with that, here I go, ready? Hot shot, you know, flavor of the day. I mean, not that those guys can't coach. I think they're excellent offensive coordinators, but I'd find a guy that 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 I thought was going to be there five, six, seven, eight, nine years. What was the beauty of Clemson when, when they were as good as anybody in America? The continuity of staff. The coaches were there, had been there. All of a sudden, you have somewhat of an exodus of coaching, and you start leaking a little oil. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.